0: Steve and I discuss the results of Eternal Weekend on episode 31 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 31 of So Many Insane Plays, where Steve and I discuss the exciting results from the first ever Eternal Weekend. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, folks. If you have any questions or comments, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave us feedback on Eternal Central, MTGcast, or themanadrain.com. For announcements, let's start with upcoming Team Sirius Opens in Ohio on December 15 in Sandusky and December 21 in Columbus. So we're back to back in Ohio with Vintage tournaments next month. Steve, you have some new articles out.
1: Just one. uh, I published my Vintage Championship report and primer on the deck that I played. It's the Pitch Burning Tendrils uh, and other brews and two tournament reports article. So that is now available on (laughs) EternalCentral.com. Nice. An update on the Gush book. I am uh still working on the third edition. The first edition of the Gush book was 100 pages, and I'm only in the fifth chapter of the third edition, and it's already 100 pages. So this will be much longer. Nice. Your
0: Gush book got a little press over Eternal Weekend, huh?
1: Yeah, I guess they talked about it a little bit in the Walking the Plains video, which is hilarious.
0: They did. I saw it. It was pretty interesting. It was funny the way that they positioned it as writing a whole book about a single card. And I found your response to be very thorough and also very typical for you.
1: <laughs> that, was the, that was the edited version. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs>
0: Yes. For those of you who know about the book and listen to our show, you'll find Steve's summary of it on Walking the Plains. Pretty satisfying, I think.
1: The other thing that uh, I'm going to reboot in the new year is the History of Vintage series. Uh, We've already mentioned it, but the first 10 chapters, which are 1993 to 2002 or compiled into a single volume, which if you buy the the compilation, it's a a discount over the individual chapters. But as soon as I'm finished with the Gush book, I'm going to start up on that again, and the next chapter will be 2003. That'll happen sometime in early 2014. Okay.
0: Since this episode is all about Eternal Weekend, we have a number of topics and perspectives to cover, but I think we're going to start with overall impressions from the weekend, the events and what it was like to be there and the things that went on. Steve, where would you like to begin with your thoughts now that you've had some distance from it?
1: Well, I think the big thing question coming in was whether Vintage and Legacy could support a separate sort of standalone event. You know. The Vintage Championship had been rooted in Gen Con and the Gen Con experience. And when Eternal Weekend was first announced, you and I both speculated on the possibilities for where it might be relocated. And I think we both came to the conclusion that it seemed more probable that it would be at a Grand Prix rather than a standalone event. Mm -hmm. But the standalone event, I think, was an overwhelming success.
0: I couldn't agree more. Uh, In no small part, obviously, to the tournament organizer, Nick Koss and Card Titan, they did a great job. But, it really did. Yeah. But I think it's just it's a little bit more than tournament organization when you talk about Eternal Weekend. The setting and the community and the dealers and the the location just everything came together. And the attendance followed.
1: Yeah, the attendance. This was the largest vintage championship of all Steve, time. Steve, what
0: were the attendance numbers for Legacy and Vintage? You're...
1: I don't have it in front of me, but the Vintage Championship was, I think, over 225. It was around 225, which is which makes it the largest ever. It, it was not only the largest Vintage Championship, but it was also larger than the 2005 Waterbury, which was 202 people. The largest Vintage event I'd ever attended.
0: From a Vintage standpoint, it's unprecedented in the in the United States.
1: Or the format it, the, when the format was known as Type One, there were larger events, obviously. But for the format simply known as Vintage, this is the largest, you know, since in the modern era, this is the largest Vintage event of all time in the United States.
0: Right. The Legacy event was not the largest Legacy event, obviously, since Legacy has Grand Prix support and such. But it was still comparable to a Star City Games Open, which I consider to be successful for a an individual tournament organizer such as Nick and Card Titan. Yeah, and it complemented Vintage very well.
1: One of the most notable aspects of this tournament, I think, was the use of security. Um, that had been a big deal at the last Gen Con. But what they did differently here was they not only required you to have a wristband to go into the main hall where the Vintage and Legacy Championships were being held, in addition to giving you a wristband for the main hall, they also required you to put a band that had a number on it on anything that you may have taken in such as a backpack or a bag. And the backpack number had to match the number on your wristband. Therefore, no one could really walk out with someone else's bag. Um, that was a really innovative and, I think, important measure that should be used again.
0: I agree. And I talked to a handful of players about that specific topic. Everyone said it really made them feel good. It was excellent for peace of mind. And the minor inconvenience of going in and out of certain rooms was no one was complaining about that. It did, you know, hold people up for a few moments. In certain cases, in between rounds, it was several moments. But as a whole, I think it was very well received by everyone there. Yeah.
1: The other thing that I thought was really cool was the use of Twitter to... Update pairing. Oh yes. Pairing.
0: Definitely, absolutely. That should be done for every event that's more than a couple of dozen players if possible.
1: The only, the only criticism I have is that I think the grinders really didn't work as envisioned. The Nick Cossett said that they would post the grinder deck list before the tournament. That not only didn't happen, but I, I thought that there just simply weren't enough grinders that fired. So I got in Thursday night so I could participate in the Friday grinder and that grinder didn't even start until the end of the day Friday. Um, and on Saturday, <laughs> Uh, Heiner, Litz, and I went to go see the Liberty Bell after lunch because we you know, in Independence Hall because we thought that the grinder probably wouldn't start on time and it didn't. And we came back. Uh, the grinder, the first grinder had started, and we started to sign up for a second. I went to the hotel, and you were asleep, and Theo was on his iPad, and you guys had signed <laughs> up. You guys had signed up for the grinder, <laughs> and uh, we were just sort of sitting in the, the hotel room, not even knowing it started, expecting that it would probably have not have started yet. And because it was single elimination, you guys were automatically knocked out. So... You know, the idea of a single elimination grinder, I think, works if you have a high demand for grinders and if you're sort of cycling through them multiple, you know, multiple grinders per day. But that simply didn't happen. I think that it would be much better if in the future they went to sort of, a, you know, a, a regular tournament structure pre-scheduled. I mean, it, it's kind of frustrating. I'm sure you'll agree to sign up for a tournament at one o'clock that may start anywhere between four and six. But you don't really know when.
0: I agree. Something else needs to be done with that. There was not only a lack of, what I would say, diligence in terms of their starting times, but also there was a sort of discontinuity in the fact that those grinders were taking place in a separate room, smaller room and I'm not saying that that's an absolute de- deal breaker or anything but it did feel, it contributed to the notion that the grinders were disconnected from the whole weekend, the whole event.
1: I'm not sure that's an issue because they you know, in Gen Con everything's under one, one almost in one hall. You right. know, all, at least all the, the CCG stuff. This event, I actually like the separation of rooms because you had a, a viewing room where you could watch matches in progress and, and having the grinders separated from the main event hall was a security measure more than anything else because the Legacy Championship was going on while the Saturday grinders were were being held. So I don't see that as much of a problem as is the lack of pre-scheduled events you know you could sign up for a grinder at noon and it might fire at one it might fire at two it might fire at six you have no way of knowing in advance and so you're sort of in a holding pattern while you wait for for the grinder to fire and fill up fill up and fire i think that is a mistake i think you know it, it would be great if there's you know 150 people who are signing up for grinders over the course of the day but if there's only one or two grinders that are going to fire that doesn't make any sense people who get there at one have to wait five hours doing what you know, sitting around doing nothing, wasting their time, waiting for a grinder to fill. And not to mention, if you have pre-scheduled grinders, so if it says there will be a grinder at one, there will be a grinder at four, and if there's more demand, we can add another, that allows people to schedule, plan, um, and you wouldn't have issues like what you had. And also, I think that there's this other aspect to the grinder experience, which is that, look, there aren't a lot of, you know, frankly, 40, 32 to 40-player vintage events anywhere. These local events are of 25 players. So a 32-player grinder is prestigious in its own right and I think deserves that kind of accord, not just – well, people are – are probably willing to play in a single elimination event. I think you would have increased attendance if you just did a regular event with a cut to top eight.
0: Yep, I agree with all of your points. I think that that's definitely an area of improvement for future years.
1: What did you think of the commentary and the coverage, Kevin?
0: Well, unfortunately, I haven't watched too much of it. I did watch some of the top eights. I watched my feature match again, most of it. And I found that... In general, the quality was very high. I have a lot of respect for Randy Buehler. I have a lot of respect for Chris Picula. And the, the weight of history that they bring to the format, I think is great. And their experience obviously is, is pretty extensive.
1: They're vintage magic players. They are. They're in more ways than one. <laughs>
0: And I thought I thought they brought a lot of uh, uh, knowledge and respect to the format and it's just it's yeah. the best it's the best commentary we've probably ever had for vintage.
1: I think that's right. I think this is the best coverage I've ever seen for a vintage event. Randy and Chris let gravitas toss to the event. Mm-hmm. They and of course enhanced the visibility of the event on account of their stature, but also as commentators they had complementary styles. Randy's exuberance was very nicely complemented by Chris's sort of studied reflectiveness. You could almost as, as you listen to Chris and I've watched I've watched almost all of the videos at this point. Chris is Sort of so self-reflective. It, it's you know one way of interpreting this he seems to be questioning every move every player makes. But you could almost see that you can almost see that as an inner dialogue of his own play. You know it's like it's it's fascinating. And, and Randy is of course a master of magic play play-by-play, play, a talent and skill I think honed by years of Pro Tour coverage. Whereas Chris's sort of probing analysis lent uh, I think some real insight to almost every decision, or at least it, it sort of sort of opened up a dialogue about every decision. In fact, I thought the commentary. Was so fascinating that it would be almost interesting to listen to it abstracted from the matches themselves. You could almost just like not even have the video and just listen to it for its own sake, or sort of disconnected from the the, uh, the 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 play that they were commenting on.
0: I agree completely. I am certain that many of our listeners who weren't at the event watched some or all of the coverage in real time. I would. I know we have a lot of listeners though who were at the event and. I would encourage them if they haven't already to go back and watch this stuff because even though it's an event you participated in, you know the outcome, et cetera, et cetera, you need to watch it just for the craft of the thing because this is something of a watershed moment for vintage magic. And who knows? Hopefully it will, it will continue to get better than this, but it may not. (laughs) This may be the best thing we have for
1: some time.
0: And we're going to talk. It's important.
1: We're going to talk more about sort of uh, the the coverage later in this podcast. But it, it's a really important point that you don't get this kind of you don't get a a lot of high high visibility vintage coverage very often. And b when you do you don't have this this commentator this great. I know some vintage players sort of raise some criticisms about sort of the lack of very recent format and metagame knowledge. But I think you know Randy and Chris know the format pretty well. They've all played it at one time. Both played it at one time or another. in pretty deep level and i think this really speaks to the need to have other tournament organizers have this kind of thing because when people watch these videos they're going to really have a much better understanding of vintage than they did before you know it, i think it peels back some of the mystique of vintage and the stereotypes that people have about the format um, and i think that's most evident you know, they did such a wonderful job that you know and in the, the matches themselves are so compelling right the format itself sells itself, that you really begin to understand the deeper lines of play and what's going on. But it, I think it speaks to the need for other tournament organizers who are increasingly using cover, you know, video to figure out how to do it, why they should do it, and it just makes Vintage a more attractive overall format. I think the next NYSE event would be a huge mistake if they didn't have really good video coverage. Definitely. And, and as magic, as vintage goes onto magic online, I think we're gonna see a lot more video of vintage. So now is the time to sort of get that, get that done and do that right. And the coverage... In addition
0: to being of excellent quality was also a great compliment to this event and vice versa. I think this was a good event in terms of the decks played and the players present to have coverage on. So it's just a real best of all possible worlds.
1: So what do you think, uh, what do you think pretends for the future of the Eternal Weekend, Kevin?
0: (sighs) While there are a couple of nitpicks here and there, things we can offer as constructive criticism, I think this weekend was a smashing success. Attendance for vintage being unprecedented, attendance for legacy being not Record setting, but still respectable. And just the overall impression of every participant that I spoke to uh, during and since. And it, it just was a wild success. I, I would be very surprised if this was not seriously considered. I mean, by default at this point as uh, the repeat for next year for 2014.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Did you uh, did you sell your Tarmogoyf playmat?
0: <laughs> nope, it is right next to me here, rolled up uh, near me on my desk.
1: Just for our listeners who may not know, uh, Nick Koss and Card Titan gave away a limited edition Tarmogoyf playmat to everyone who attended uh, the first 400 players who registered for the Vintage and Legacy Championship. And I sold that thing. Uh, I think the dealers were buying it for on site for thirty five. I sold it on eBay for over eighty. So I was quite happy with that.
0: That is just one of several examples where this event was very generous to the players in the community. And I'm I feel bad because I would not be surprised if Nick and Card Titan lost some money on this thing end to end. But they built an awful lot of goodwill in a number of ways. So I would say to our community that you should be very grateful for what has been created here. There is a chance that it won't be quite as generous in years to come. I don't know. I can't predict the future. But I still think that Nick has the community in mind and the community's best interest in mind when he did this thing from beginning to end.
1: And did you say want to say anything else about the community itself?
0: Well, just that something we've said over and over again, and I can only reiterate it here, is that Vintage has a fantastic community. Every, I mean, I saw tons and tons of people I know, a whole bunch of people I knew were going, some I didn't, people I ran into, old friends, old champs, ran into Roland Chang, for example, that was a good surprise for me.
1: (laughs) Yeah,
0: and yeah, lots of older Mana Drain uh, personalities came out of the woodwork, people Steve, you and I played with consistently 10 years ago, and just everything about the community was what I know and have come to enjoy and love, and that is Everyone I played was great. Uh, everyone was very supportive of everyone else. You know, walking out of the tournament hall after the round and you just walk past person after person. Hey, how's it going? What's your record? How's it going? Oh, bad beat stories. All oh, good plays, bad plays. Just end to end. And then everything that happened while the tournament wasn't going on. So anyone who is maybe hesitant or thinking about or starting to join the vintage community in some other far-off part of the world or somewhere that's well-established, you're in for a treat because this community really showed, I think, its colors this particular weekend, and it was all good.
1: Let's uh, shift the focus from the event and the, uh, the community Uh, and to you (laughs) so kevin first of all congratulations on your third vintage championship top eight you have attended seven and you've top aided three right and i think that that puts you in a very small club i think so who are the people who have top aided three of these you me, paul brian demars and I think that may be it. There have been a number of people who've top-aided twice, like David Allen and Shane Stoots, and I think Rich Matuzio top-aided the year, <laughs> the year that, um, he top-aided the year that Carl won, and he top-aided the year that I won.
0: Rich Shea has at least
1: two? Rich Shea at least. There are a number of people up, have two. Yeah. But I think there are only four of us who top-aided three times. Fascinating. So you and, yeah, you top eighted in 2003 and 2004, and now 2013. So there- <laughs> Very cool. It is very cool. That, that part of it does feel pretty good. So Kevin, what decks did you consider for the Vintage Championship?
0: I considered really only that I would, I knew I was going to be playing Blue-Based Control. And whether or not it was more aggro control or combo control, I was not clear on, but I knew I was going to be playing Force of Will in this event, and I knew I also wanted to be playing Tinker and Time Vault. Now, I could live without one or the other of those if the deck called for it, but My goal for this event was to play a deck that had the capability to win quickly with certain draws, but and also had the the capability to come from behind if need be. I wanted to play a deck that would allow me to have narrow, focused path to victories where possible, but also be ready for a broad field. I was expecting a large event. I was expecting a pretty diverse field. And also, really, I didn't make my choice until the night before because of the grinders. The grinder that I didn't observe, which was won by our friend Theo, and the grinders that I did participate in and observe really solidified my decision right there at the end.
1: So can you explain that a little bit more? What, what, what was the impetus for sort of deciding that you wanted a deck that had either Tinker or Time Vault? Because I remember one of the decks you had been playing up until the event was a, you had been playing a weird bugfish deck. And you had also played, I think, in the months leading up to the event, a Gush deal still. <laughs> Landskill deck of Gush. That's right. Neither one of, neither one of those have Time Vault or Tinker, right?
0: That's right. Leading up to the event, I was basically experimenting with lists I saw in other events and also some of my own uh, purposefully to get a feel for things. So the Bugfish list that you cite, I modified from the Bizarre of Moxin winning list. And I tweaked it for my local metagame because I wanted to get experience with that kind of deck. Aggro Control is not the sort of thing I play much. So I played that in two events. About the time that Young Pyromancer came out, you and I are both pretty excited about that, and I played that in a handful of events, at least three or four. Yeah. And a couple different derivations of that list. Also, I I made myself play Landstill in at least two more events this year. Now, I played a Rug Landstill list in last year's Champs and did, uh, did subpar, But it was a list of my own devising, and it has actually come closer to what a lot of other common landstill players have started to play lately, Splashing Green for Ancient Grudge more specifically. And I tested out a couple derivations of that in tournaments also, because I wanted to get more and more experience with landstill to understand it better. And I concluded that while I really like landstill, and I like my version of it as well, my experience last year showed me that it wasn't as flexible, especially in my build of it, wasn't as flexible to unexpected matchups as I wanted it to be. It couldn't overpower people, and that's really the thing. I wanted to play a deck that could just overpower matchups that I may be an underdog in and also maybe was not fully prepared for.
1: Is that what you mean by coming from behind a little bit?
0: Yes. That's why I wanted to have access to game winning plays that would help me overpower a matchup if I was an underdog or not, you're not ready.
1: The Landstill deck, one of your versions at least, had have, have the Gush Bond in.
0: <laughs> That's right. It was an effort on my part to try and graft that kind of thing into Landstill to be very heavy control, but also have the ability to just overwhelm. And it, it works sometimes, but I don't consider it to be a great deck.
1: So um what were the decks that you narrowed down to then, given your criteria?
0: I still had a Young Pyromancer list together because I thought that despite everything we've talked about in terms of the metagame adapting, I think the deck was still good enough to compete, and there was actually a Young Pyromancer in the finals, although not the same style. Yeah. And I also had, unfortunately, no tournament experience with the recent four-color control decks or the Italian Keeper-style lists that had recently come up. So I was testing that, and the thing that was the real tipping point, well, there were two of them. One of them was Toxic Deluge. The Commander product came out. Toxic Deluge and True Name Nemesis were the two cards that I wanted to get testing experience with.
1: We discussed those extensively in the last podcast.
0: Absolutely. I tested True Name Nemesis and found that while it was decent, it didn't create a new deck or anything. It didn't really... Uh, really shift any matchups significantly in a way that I thought was earth-shattering. But Toxic Deluge was very interesting to me, and I definitely tested it, and I definitely found that the best home for it was a multicolor control deck that was light on creatures. I didn't want to play it in Grixis, for example, because it has a lot of synergy with Dark Confidant. But I was very pleasantly surprised at how synergistic and good it was in a four-color control deck, especially one playing Deathrite Shaman.
1: But, but doesn't that contradict the idea of playing it with a lot of creatures?
0: <laughs> yes and no. One, Deathrite Shaman is surprisingly adept at counteracting the drawbacks of, of uh, Toxic Deluge in that it can gain you life. Uh, drawing a Deathrite Shaman after the Deluge is synergistic because you can remove those creatures to buy back the life if you need to. But surprisingly, and this is something that I would never have thought of in advance, you can frequently have your Deathrite Shamans live through Toxic Deluge in many matchups in Vintage. Which is something that caught me completely off guard, in that a lot of cases you're facing down an army of pyromancers, or a couple of bobs, or snapcaster mages, or unflipped delvers. All of these things, your deathright shaman gets to live through that toxic deluge. Explain. Well, you simply deluge for one. Deluge for one is very functional, very common, very useful in Vintage and it gets rid of a large swath of the playable creatures.
1: Hmm. So the flexibility of Deluge, being able to select exactly how much life and how much uh, damage you want to sort of sweep out, is 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 an element of that aspect of that card that's very important.
0: Definitely. And I think that the four-color control deck with Deathrite Shamans was the best home that I could come up with for it in preparation for this event.
1: What made you decide then only one Deluge, given the emphasis your deck seems to have on that card?
0: Yeah, well... That is an interesting point and the simple truth is is I never wanted to draw two. I couldn't imagine a game where I'd want to play one twice, barring counter spells of course, and it was such a narrowly focused target, such as there are a handful of in that deck, that I I just simply couldn't stomach drawing two. I was comfortable putting another one in the sideboard, but when I devised my sideboard and especially after the grinders, I I you know, I didn't decide on my sideboard until the night before. I just could not justify even putting a second one in the sideboard. It was a it was a nice functional target against number of decks in the metagame, but it was not a primary focus of the deck.
1: But you also didn't have mystical tutors, so you had fewer ways to find it. So what was your reasoning behind cutting mystical, given the emphasis your deck has on deluge?
0: The primary reason for my cutting mystical was that I expected. Given that this event took place in the Northeast, that I would play against multiple, very skilled, multicolored control opponents. I expected to face off against Landstill, against Bomberman, against Grixis, etc. And Mystical Tutor is the sort of card that comes out in every one of those matchups. Mm-hmm. So I was basically metagaming my control list against other control decks with that choice.
1: Gotcha. So the main reason you settled on Keeper is because you thought this would be the most effective home for Deluge and and also satisfied this other criteria that you wanted to focus on?
0: That's right. It was just a confluence of the other criteria that I had. I found that it you, it abused Toxic Deluge, it, which answered a number of minor threats that I was you know, facing from a deck construction standpoint. And it had the Time Vault and the Key and the Tinker Colossus. I also thought Deathrite Shaman was just a nice, uh, well-positioned in the metagame for disrupting a number of strategies. And it just encapsulated all the answers I wanted to while maximizing Toxic Deluge and also being pretty flexible, being very flexible
1: how was toxic deluge on the
0: day ironically it was not that important and also ironically it would have been very important towards i able to get at it in the in the top 8
1: yeah
0: <laughs> throughout the day i believe i cast it only twice mm-hmm. because my matchups while the event featured a lot of aggro control decks in general my matchups did not favor those decks in general. And so it was decent, it was an option, it was the right thing to do in a, a short list of games, but in general, it was not a major player. I'm glad that I had access to it.
1: Do you want to sort of speak to any of any interesting features of your deck list?
0: We should probably touch on Abrupt Decay and Sensei's Divining Top.
1: Go for it. So, So... Explain some of the ratios and inclusions and omissions. Abrupt Decay, lots of people who
0: would play a four-color control deck such as this, especially one featuring multiple cities of brass, would say that um, that list calls for more Abrupt Decays. It's very flexible, it's a very good answer to multiple things. And I can't argue that it it is those things, but I also found that when I was constructing the deck, it was kind of like Toxic Deluge. I just simply didn't want to draw a lot of them. And after I had factored in the the way that I wanted to answer Jace the Mind Sculptor via Lightning Bolts and the fact that I wanted to have access to Toxic Deluge and a main deck Ancient Grudge, it, it simply came down to the fact that I couldn't find room for everything that you might have and one abrupt decay was all that I could justify. Now, a lot of people might look at that one Snapcaster Mage and say, well, that could have been another spell of some kind. But my style of playing a multicolor controller deck like this with many singleton answers is that I really am a big fan of Snapcaster Mage for the flexibility of of doubling up on whatever it is that's best for your matchup. So if I need Abrupt Decay, my plan is to find it the first time and then cast it again with Snapcaster Mage.
1: One of the things that the commentators emphasize is just how many singletons you have i mean you've got a lot of one ofs. you have a spell snare a sensei's divining top you've got an ancient grudge one abrupt decay and the sideboard you have a red blast a steel sabotage i I don't know if i mentioned you had a spell snare main deck as well so snapcaster mage can be very flexible depending if you've gotten the card one of these singletons or not The commentators were curious about why you didn't have a Ponder, and a number of other people were curious about the lack of Hercule's or Steel Sabotage main deck.
0: Ponder was in the original version of the list, and it became Sensei's Divining Top. For the primary reason that I don't like, in a multicolor control deck such as this, I don't like to have cards like Preordain and Ponder as sorcery speeds on the first turn against Workshops. And I found that in the long run, I think Sensei's Divining Top uh, helped me against Lodestone Golem, which is minor, but it's a major consideration whenever you're considering all the cards in a deck, Lodestone Golem. But also I thought I found that it helped me more in the control matchups. I envisioned my games against other control decks like Grixis going quite long. I envisioned them being very grindy, and I wanted to lean on my Deathrite Shamans in those long games. So I thought I'd get more value out of top there as well. When it comes to Hercules Recall, that was entirely replaced by Toxic Deluge. A lot of players would immediately say, well, that's not a very good replacement. You won't even be able to get to Toxic Deluge in certain cases. Well, I would argue that I've compensated for that by including the Lightning Bolts, the Abrupt Decay, the Ancient Grudge, the Spell Snare, other things that help me get to that point. Hercules Recall is the thing you want against several Spheres and Smokestack and Tangle Wires. But and I recognize that, but against Workshop Aggro that's coming at you with Lodestones and Metamorphs, and also against Dredge, and also against Opposing Blightsteel Colossus, I just really enjoyed the flexibility of Toxic Deluge. So I made a little bit of a hedge and said I don't expect to play against Smokestack as much as other creature decks, and I want to be able to have a card that's just as good as Hercule's against Opposing Blightsteel Colossus. Hmm. Ironically, the one Workshop player I played against was playing Espresso Stacks. (laughs) (laughs) But we can talk more about that later.
1: Um, When was the last time that you had played Keeper?
0: The last time I played a deck that was named Keeper would have been back when I played Paul Mastriano at Origins in, what, 2000, 2001... (laughs) that hilarious tournament report that you recently unearthed
1: that that's funny you it's been a long time since you played keeper
0: definitely and i also call this deck keeper with a pretty serious tongue in cheek
1: Well, it does, it is built around sort of the city of brass and multicolor control, you know, classic multicolor control package. Without a doubt. The, you know, we were in the hotel room late the night before and you were sort of deep in contemplation trying to figure out exactly what you were going to play and what you were going to include. And I had sort of settled on my deck a long time before. How much of this was pulled together at the last minute and how much was it sort of planned in advance? The main deck is probably
0: within two cards, I would say, of the version I had sleeved up for testing for about a week beforehand. So, while the choice was, the deck choice was last minute, the list that I'd put together was only really influenced by one or two cards in the main. Sideboard, probably half a dozen cards, but Uh, Sideboards are like that. I generally try not to solidify a sideboard until the night before an event.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So what decks did you face in the tournament?
0: Well, let's see. I started off, ironically, facing a Blue-Red Landstill player that I had sat next to in the grinder the day before. And he is a young guy named Tom, and I think he's relatively new to either that deck or possibly the format. Because he was asking a lot of questions during the grinder the night before. And he also asked me some questions because we sat next to each other at the player meeting. And he asked me questions about his deck because he knew who I was and he wanted to get some thoughts. So I knew not only who he was, but what he was playing when we started. And I think I think his inexperience with the deck at least showed through right from the get-go. Because he I won the die roll. And I played land go, and I was happy with my hand. It had several mana sources and I think some a couple of counters, so I was all set to just get right into the late game already since I knew the matchup. He played land go. I played a second land go. I think I had mana drain up, but I also had Snapcaster Mage. He played a second land and cast Standstill, a pretty nominal play for that deck. It's pretty normal, and I was not surprised at all. But the thing that wasn't normal was I hemmed and hawed about the Snapcaster in my hand. I've been in this exact situation before against Landstill with Snapcaster mages, and generally speaking, it is not worth it to play the Snapcaster mage. It's a gambit that almost always fails. Why is that? Because they'll
1: find the factory in
0: time? Yes, because they have a number of answers, and it's it's you're banking on too much time going by without them being able to answer it. But I reasoned that we're round one of the tournament, and Tom is, I will say, not an experienced player with the deck. I bet that it is to my advantage to put pressure on him, and so I play the Snapcaster Mage. Seven turns later, (laughs) he lightning bolts the Snapcaster Mage on my end step, breaking his own standstill. Later, I found out that he kept a one land hand Wow. on the draw. Uh, on the draw, but he kept a one land hand. Drew the second land on turn two and played the standstill, feeling very good about playing a standstill, having yeah, just drawn his second good. land. And so it was just a matter of my reading the situation and my choices to play that Snapcaster Mage were perfectly matched against what he had drawn and chosen to play, and it was it was surprising. I didn't expect it to work out that way, but it did. I won that round against Landstill. Uh, <clears throat> moving on, I played against Mike Egan with Blue Angels in round two. It was a very close uh, match that he and I played. I played against Oath in round three. Micah Greenbaum finished tenth. I played against Gush Tendrils in round four. Vito Picozo finished ninth. So I've played against ninth and tenth place. <laughs> then in round f- then in round five, I played against Espresso, Michael Marr, a very experienced Espresso player. I was undefeated at this point. Round six, my feature match matched up against eventual top eighter Benjamin Donay, playing Rogue Delver, and we'll talk about this match in some detail. But that was my first loss. Round seven, I played against Four Color Mayor Humans. Colton was playing the deck, and I think he was unpowered competing for the for the budget prize. Unfortunately, looking at the standings after the fact, he finished 68th. Now, keep in mind, he was X1 in round 7 and still managed mm. to finish in 68th place, which tells me he lost his last three rounds. I'm sorry to hear that. Then in round 8, I played against Jeff Anon in his Grixis control deck, which did not have Dark Confidant. And in round 9, I was matched up against Oath, but we drew. So my one loss in the Swiss was my feature match, sadly, uh, to Rugdelver.
1: So you played, Anon finished 18th, and Michael Maher, your 5th round opponent, finished 25th. So you played the 10th, 9th, Fifth and 18th and first place opponents yeah. during the tournament. Yeah, in, terms
0: I, of, in terms of their positions in the final standings, my opponents were pretty considerable in this event.
1: I I really enjoyed watching your quarterfinals match against Joel Lim. It was probably the most interesting match that I had watched on the entire day, besides you know outside of my own my own matches, which just I enjoyed because of the deck I played. <laughs> um <laughs> In particular, one of the most notable aspects about your match with Joel Lim. Was your multifaceted use of Jace. You used every single Jace in, in every single respect that you possibly can except for the ultimate. You Jace yourself, you fate sealed yourself, you fate sealed him, you bounced creatures, and you brainstormed. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could sort of talk about the considerations that you use when you decide to fate seal yourself and when you decide to fate seal your opponent. Um, you know, I, I saw a tendency, you really, in the match against Joel, it was interesting because he was mana tight in the first game, and the game went like probably 10 turns, if not longer. Yeah. And one of the key things that kept happening was that he played uh, the Silver Gale Adept, and he you bounced it twice. He was he kept drawing cards off of it, but he wasn't able to draw man, more mana to play more creatures. Um, and um, I'm just wondering first if you could just talk about sort of what's the consideration that goes into Fate Sealing yourself versus your opponent?
0: Well, in general, there's my default is to fate seal myself. I'll just say that up front, except for if the situation calls for the fact that I can heavily disrupt them by fate sealing them. Multicolor. why
1: Why is that your default?
0: Well, simply because in general I feel as though I have. In many matchups in Vintage, my experience tells me what they have, or what they have access to. Not literally per se, like I'm, I'm not an expert at reading someone's exact hand contents, but in general I know what their deck does, I know the sort of things they have, I know what I need to play around. I feel that I get a lot more value by something deterministic on my side, rather than gaining a small incremental advantage on their side. So I, I find great value in saying, looking at the top card in my deck and saying, I don't need this now, or yes, I do need this now, this is part of my game plan. As opposed to looking at a random card from their basically hand and, and now just having that piece of information. I find that there are very few cards in the average mid game in a vintage game where they're not mana screwed and they're, they have a hand of cards. There are very few cards on my opponent's side that I'm going to definitely be able to say, yeah, I don't want them to have that. Or, wow, I'm really glad that I know that they have that one card now. Whereas I prefer to be more deterministic on my side. Also, there's further interactions to be considered with regard to future brainstorms or past brainstorms right so and that's something i did in game one against joel i fate sealed myself twice not to gain information but to get rid of garbage cards that i already knew were there
1: yeah and then your brainstorm was just for full value exactly um in, in i i will mention this since you're unfortunately your video with joel is not on your, your match with joel is not on video but you seem to violate your rule in the game where he had null Rod out and it looked like he would complete control just about until you drew Academy. You had like Voltaic Key and a pair of Moxen in play and another artifact besides maybe a Sol Ring or something like that. And you drew Academy and he you played something that he forced and you mana drained with the his force getting a ton of mana. But you could only, I think, Merchant Scroll and you Merchant Scroll for Ancestral Resolve, but it didn't really do much for you. Had you had a Steel Sabotage or Hercules there... You, I think, would have been able to bounce his null rod and potentially go off. That's the first question I wanted to ask you about. The second, though, is your decision. You know, you're the one who is long. <laughs> you wrote an article in 2004 for Star City Games about always going to your attack phase first. You talked about in the, that about this in scenarios on this podcast. I'm wondering if you, that was a, a, an error or a, a deliberate decision or what was going on. So that's a two-part question. I, th-
0: <clears throat> I think that stri- certainly speaking, it was not the right choice. And I think I had. I I thought about it in my mind. I thought, this is one of those situations where you should do this. But I, I sort of talked myself out of it for some reason, because I reasoned that not only was I expecting to use all my mana this turn, but I had no other use for colorless mana this turn or next, <laughs> was how I reasoned. And so I thought it was just a really low percentage play. In hindsight, even if it's low percentage, you still do it. So that's why I say it is clearly an error. But it's the sort of thing where I was so excited that I had the line of play that could potentially win me the game that Mm -hmm. I sort of dismissed this notion that I was going to get incremental value out of that declaring my attack. The short answer is I should have done it.
1: And, And what about sort of the answers to Null Rod? I mean, Abrupt Decay and Ancient Grudge were not answers there.
0: Well, it is something that I simply never prepared for in the event, which is Blue Merfolk. I mean, that is to say, I tested against it, but when I was building my deck, I was not considering it. It was lumped in with the sort of catch-all of things that Toxic Deluge helps against. And to say that I, I would not say that if I was to rebuild my deck today, I would include Hercules Recall or Steel Sabotage because of this experience. Merfolk is still very low down on the list of decks you'll face in the average metagame, unless you're in Joel's metagame every week. And also, my deck still has answers to that situation. In addition to simply counterspelling, the, I still do consider Abrupt Decay and Ancient Grudge to be acceptable answers to that situation. And th- I had Abrupt Decay in game one, and if I had, could have drawn, say, a fetch land instead of Academy, I would have Abrupt Decayed Null Rod that same turn, and mm-hmm. the game would have played out in a different fashion, because I had Tropical Island in play. So, while it's unfortunate, and yes, that is a situation where, uh, I could have Merchant Scrolled for an answer perhaps, at, doesn't change my mind about the overall direction of the deck.
1: If you had a mystical tutor, you could have also tinker for Colossus there as well.
0: I would say it's absolutely true that if I had access to Merchant Scroll for I'm sorry for Mystical and then into Tinker, I would have considered that line of play. But again, the situation was so narrow and unique in terms of even just vintage matchups and vintage gameplay in general. The notion that I had access to six mana but it was only blue, (laughs) and that I had merchant scroll and I needed an answer to this situation. That's the sort of thing that people cite as why they sort of include certain cards in certain situations, but it is so rare that I wouldn't rebuild the deck because of it.
1: I guess that leads to one of my last questions. Would you have made your deck replay the turn?
0: Boy, you know, I've given a little bit of thought to that. And honestly, every little thing that I chose turned out to be very good. And Toxic Deluge, all the one-offs turned out to be very good. I guess the choices that I made to hedge against Workshops, if I had to do it over again, I would hedge less there because Workshops was so down in this event. But those kind of hypotheticals are pretty dangerous because I know there are some people who played Workshops three times in this event, so I was just not one of them.
1: How amazing would the Abyss have been for you, if only <laughs> that creatures? Yeah, it does. <laughs> you can't have uh, Flusterstorm the Abyss, that's for sure. <laughs> you can't Curse Catcher it either. <laughs>
0: in more ways than one.
1: (laughs) I'll say at the outset that the feature matches were fascinating. I don't think almost a single match that you can find without an error, you know, in some cases, a mistake. Um, round six against Kevin was fa- uh, against Benjamin was fascinating the first game was very long fact to 13 turns you think you scooped on the 13th turn and you basically just drew much mana your opening hand was mana two forces and abrupt decay and you just find else you just drew ma- you got mana flooded and the answers you drew were just insufficient the second game you had a very was a short six turn game a very fascinating finish in which he was about to keep with double goif when you played a you you, the term before you had used say divining top and you found and you played it. And then in your up key you had um played top and you saw a time vault and you drew and you also had key on top of your you had the time vault in your hand, but you had key on top and you had vamp on top and you had to figure out exactly how to sort of play all of these. What you did was you played um and he played mental misstep and you only had up after all this, and what you ended up doing was you vamp up. You drew it and you misstepped his misstep and that you had one minute left. The uh, time ball to go infinite. But, and Randy noted that was a, a nice play, and that was a play I saw coming as well. I
0: was pretty pleased with the fact that that all came together. Um, I, I basically saw that line the turn before.
1: Yeah, the heat second misstep or anything. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it worked. It worked really well. Another thing, you know, you were just meta type game, um, but passing uh, game. But the most interesting game is the third game, and in the game ended up going tw- another 12 turns. In the sequence I just want you to look like this. He played first. He played a flood estran and then used his atrop. So he could... you responded by fetching out underground sea, and you played abrupt decay on his turn on his tarmogoy. Very nice drawing rainforest and monk emerald there. Uh, you <laughs> um, on your second turn you played demon you um, played demonic tutor. Island Ancestral, which he met with the Force of Will, which you couldn't stop. But your Ancestral was forced. On turn three, he, of course, had the perfect Gush. He floated his... his uh, he tapped his Volcanic Island and his Tropical Island for two mana, and he cast Gush. And then, to top it off, so he not only got the card advantage, he also got the mana advantage, because he'd be able to replay land. But to top it off, he drew... He had Brainstorm as well. So he played Brainstorm in the Gush, but you had Mental Misstep to deny him his Brainstorm. And although he had Pyroblast in hand, he didn't didn't, apparently, float a red. I'm not sure if he did or not, but he he didn't power blaster your misstep. He just played a Volcanic Island and passed. You, Drew, you played a Volcanic Island and passed. On turn four, he played an, a tropical Island and passed. So, apparently, his goyte on turn two was his only threat. He just had permission. You played a Mox Pearl and passed. On turn five, he played a tropical Island. On turn five, you didn't. You just drew and passed. On turn six, he played a Delta and a Mox Sapphire. You... Then on turn six, you drew Jace, but you didn't play it. You passed, and I think that was the right play. On turn seven, he just drew and passed, but in your draw step, he played Click. And this was a very interesting play because you had just drawn something useful.
0: I had just drawn um, Demonic Tutor, I thought.
1: You had already used Demonic Tutor, but I think you drew Deluge. You would just drawn Deluge, and you hard cast Force. He Pyroblasted it, and he took your Deluge. Your hand was uh, was um, Lightning Bolt. Deluge, Jace and Mana. And there the commentators really you know sort of discussed this decision in some detail because two removal spells in the day delu- mm-hmm. including the deluge and the jace. I think I would have taken the jace, but you took your deluge. Um, and you drew force. Oh, you also had spell snare in your hand. You drew force off of the click which is really nice because you had played a Tarn. You played a Tarn in your main phase, and you fetched Volcanic Island, and you bolted the click. He forced your bolt, and you were able to force back up, which was tremendous value there because he didn't see it coming. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he pitched a force when he played on bolting his click, and he, uh, you know, you're know, you just sitting pretty. He draws a turn. You, of course, resolve Jace, and you fake seal yourself, which is correct, which is very funny. I mean, I mean, I mean, fate I think, is the right thing to do. It's a recall, you had fate sealed him, you would have denied him that. It doesn't matter, though. Then on, then on your ninth turn, you brainstormed with Jace. And then here's where things get. On turn 10, he even plays it. And as time walk turn, he finally draws a goal, and he plays it. Hard cast force. You could have forced pitching spell, spell, uh, spell snare, but you did, uh, sorry, you would already pitch the no, snare. You could have, you could have, uh, you could have you might need to edit this. I think you had another blue spell in your hand. I don't remember what it was. Fast force, and he spell pierced it, which you couldn't pay for. It. So his goif resolved. Now it's your eleventh turn, and you. Uh, sorry, now it's your tenth turn. What do you do? You remember what you did? How many counters
0: were on Jace at I this point? point? Was it five? His goif Yeah, I brain. I brainstormed.
1: Why did you brainstorm instead of bouncing his his uh, goif?
0: Well, because his goif was not lethal on my Jace by right. itself and I wanted to, to get card advantage
1: I think the play I would definitely would have done hold for drain and Bounce his boy
0: I wish I could recall how many cards were in his hand at that point though
1: he expended almost all remember you just two turns before you had the big fight over click he'd force it and he's just yeah you just spell pierce you you know um, if you had um, I mean I, I, I totally get your point about the he concerned he may have another counterspell, but he had definitely spent, he had spent a lot yeah. of counter magic in the last two turns And he spent his time while the Goy. Anyway, I think in retrospect, it's pretty clear that's what you should have done. You made an even bigger mistake. I think so. The big mistake you made was you played key, which was able to mental misstep, which made his Goy five power. So that became a disaster because he was just able to attack your Jace immediately.
0: Yeah. Playing the key was clearly just a brain fart. The reason I played it was because, in my mind, it was such a non-threat that I wanted to get it out there and have half of the combo on the table to be more threatening in the long run. But he didn't know that I had access to no way to assemble the rest of the combo. And he did what I think is a very logical play. But for some reason, when I was holding that key, I was looking at it as such a non-issue that I thought, I'll just run this out here now. And I had in, I had obviously in no way counted the fact that there were no artifacts in the graveyard already. So, yeah, yeah. it was just a simple oversight on myself, my part, because I was so narrowly focused on other things. He
1: could have a Lotus. He could have ramped his Griffy. He had drawn a Mox and a Steel Sabotage. He could have you know, used it to get the, the bigger there, artifact. So, but uh, he, here's how the, the game. Performed. So he, he attacked your Goyf on his um, 11th turn, and, and he played a Delver. He drew a Delver and played it. You drew you drew. Jace. So the brainstorm actually got you closer to yep. another Jace. You played the Jace and yet he stormed again. It was fascinating. He responded and the brainstorm drew you two Drain. And that you is if you had actually bounced the Goyf and scrolled for scrolled for not only would you have been able to the Goyf with Drain would have been able to survive a swing with the Delver, brainstorm, drawing then the following turn, delver with two more drains in hand, and you would have had virtually I think
0: complete Well, that's a lot of ifs. Uh, obviously, drawing all those drains with no way to shuffle or search was pretty disynergistic yeah. at that point. But there's a lot of ifs involved in what you just said. I don't think the second Jace.
1: I think the, the the key play in that entire game wasn't even the key. I think the play was your decision to brainstorm because then you drain the goit, and then you brainstorm and maintain complete control. That seems to me to be the sort of intuitive play with Jace, right? But, I mean, just I just think that that kind of line of play. I thought that was sort of like the somewhat standard with Jace is you you bounce the you counter it and then you, you let brainstorm ability take over?
0: Well, not necessarily. I think what you've just said is definitely a default play. I mean, it's definitely a consideration. And I was, at the time, I think I was simply respecting his hand a little bit more in in coming to, I think I came to the conclusion in, at the time that if i were to try and do that he had more control than i did i view bouncing creatures with jace as as a tempo play and only a tempo play yeah and so in that situation i consider bouncing with jace to be just a uh, here let's go to next turn except my jace is one smaller <laughs> now obviously your analysis and and i think a fair analysis relies on countering the jace when it comes back down but look what happened to my key <laughs> If that mental misstep is a Spell Pierce, or sorry, Snare, I mean, or a Pyroblast, well, it wouldn't have been a Pyroblast, or some other counter spell. or if he draws a Gush next turn, then it's, I think, equally likely, or at least in a very comparable likelihood, that I'm not actually going to be able to counter that Goyf.
1: Well, you might not be able to counter the Goyf, but you could bounce it again.
0: Uh Yeah, okay. Then all I've done is spent my Jason. Basically, cycling.
1: <laughs> but there's also, you could also have just fate sealed yourself or him, and the Goyf then would not have been able to kill it, at least for a turn, and you a little bit of hard quality. I think, yes, I think I definitely think there are lines. I, no,
0: it's completely true. All of those lines are valid for consideration, and I'm simply saying that at the time, I was looking at the whole history of the game, and the history of the game up to that point was basically his yeah. hand was all permission. Yeah, I think though. And so. Yeah bouncing his goyf and assuming that I'm going to be able to stop it from coming back down is in my, in my eyes at the time was not reliable. I think the
1: uh, fact that he had and spent two forces turn, and played the click and lost all of them <laughs> yeah
0: at the same time what that tells me is that maybe he just had narrow cards in his hand is all
1: Except for that one turn. And it's too bad because your top eight match was phenomenal. Your mix is so technically precise and sound. It's, it's a really remarkable mix. So I don't want this to, you know, I'm just, this is a fascinating talk about, but I don't want yeah. to. Go.
0: <laughs> well, thanks for that. And I, I do, I'm bummed, I am bummed out that my my worst play of the day probably is the one that ended game three on camera. But at the same time I still I still think the deck was good and I I played well enough to to earn top 8 at least that day. But enough about me. Steve, I want to hear about how you came to develop and play the deck that you did and what your tournament experience was like.
1: I, I put a lot of time and effort into my progress. As you know, I kept you apprised of a lot of my thought process going in the, the month before the event. Um, I think the most important trend that I was heading into the event was this trend towards aggro control. Very difficult for me to explain why I saw that trend, and I still am not quite can sure explain it. But in my the last tournament, local tournament that I played in, uh not before, but sort of there was a Vacaville tournament and the week immediately before the vintage uh, the vintage play, which was um, I don't call it pitch long because um, I actually developed the pitch long, but it's basically burning Tendrils, so I'm calling it pitch burning tindles. Um I played it to second place finish in a 25 man tournament, so I was very happy with that going in. But but the t- Vacaville Danny Freeman one, with a deck that had like two or three click's main deck, Dark Confidants and Young Pyromancers. Hmm. He kept narrowly beating my, my growth. And one of the big reasons was a Vendillian click. And I sort of sensed that there was this, I don't know what it was, the squeezing of the Medicamer around tempo. And so I sort of sensed, I told Mars I thought rug Delver was going to be a huge chance. And he really disagreed, went like 0-4 playing rug Delver this year and it was terrible. It was a crap... I thought that the metagame was... I think one of the factors... Maybe you can help blame why, why Agri-Control is so opposition, but I think one of the factors, ironically, was Young Pyromancer. Young wasn't necessarily dominant in this event, although he didn't... Pyromancer seemed to sort of put the vintage meta in a trajectory. Tempo mattered more than it had in the past. Um, and I think a lot of the printings, sort of, the format and the direction. And to my point that I, I told Brian in the week before, I thought Rugged Delver was these two players in the top eight. and He said, no, I think Bug two players, and Bugfish, Bugtempo, well, we disagree on the type. I think we were both proven true that those were strong choices. Tempo was the first and second place deck, and um, I think is a really strong post with abrupt decays and death by Chum and stuff like that. Kevin, w- what do you ex- think, explains what I- we're seeing in terms of the move towards aggro control?
0: I view it as a sort of sign of maturity for the format, and it's an acknowledgement that a lot of vintage decks that are very popular, like Grixis Control, like Bomberman, and in, to an extent, workshops, a lot of them are trading power for consistency. That is to say, very powerful plays that are inconsistent. And they are susceptible to very homogenous, consistent strategies that prey on the weak points in the structure. A deck like, well, all three of the deck examples I gave have a tactical weakness to something like Steel Sabotage, for example. If you're playing Grixis and you're trying to put together Tinker Colossus or Key Vault, both strategies are weak to Steel Sabotage. Similarly, Workshops. Workshops are very powerful on the play. They they have these haymakers, but a simple thing like Force of Will backed up with a Steel Sabotage means you get into the mid-game and all of a sudden the Workshop deck sometimes has weaknesses against something like a Targlaive yeah. or a Delver. And I, I think the decks like this are just taking the a narrow target at the pain points in some of the other archetypes in the format and driving a wedge into those pain points. A deck like Bug uses Deathrite Shamans and a combination of wastelands to really yes. prey on the weaknesses of mana bases and just I, drive a wedge like, into those points so I, and use them for victory.
1: Bug and rug, are, are and then over time, that I, I thought bug and rug would both be great choices. I, in no way, saying I I foresaw or predicted um, a mono blue murfok deck would win this event, but I did think that bug and rug would be big and. When designing decks or developing decks for big events or even smaller local events that I really want to win, I generally try and do one of two things. One, I try and look for soft spots in the metagame structure or try and engage in arbitrage. Or I seek to apply new printing to a metagame that is not ready for them. Um And so I brewed a bunch of decks. I looked at the metagame and I published that. It was the free sort of Vintage Championship preview article. And I came up with basically three deck ideas that I thought that, that sort of fit that idea of exploiting the metagame or trying to apply new printings. One was a Niv Magus elemental rug delver deck. <laughs> um, that and the reason I, I thought of that deck is because I wanted a, an again an aggro control deck that could out tempo the other aggro control decks, right? And so NIV Magus gives you an explosive answer to in the in the rug mirror, at least in theory. Um, I built a Read the Bones Oath deck, which is consistent with my idea of, of applying new printings. in since... Swan Song and Read the Bones, I thought both boosted both. I, I gave that a try. And I also built Pitch Long. And of course I had old standbys like Grow and Doomsday. Um the Pitch Long deck was the most interesting and promising. And I, the first thing I threw it up against was Rug Delver and then Grixis Control. And it performed very well against Rug Delver. Um, and the Pitch Long deck is like, you know, in the past there's been a million versions of Long, Litz Long, Pitch Long, Grim Long, you know, there's a whole family of Long decks. But the reason I call it Long is because it really looked a lot like Tommy Colewitz uh, and, and Eric Becker's Pitch Long deck from you know 2006 or whatever, and the one that Tommy Colewitz got second place with, except that instead of Grim Tutor, I had Burning Wish. And the deck was very good, except I could not get it to beat landstill. Could not. Um, I finally Tinker and blight, blight steel into the main deck, and it increased my landstill matchup a little bit, but it still was not consistent enough. So I decided to make it a four-color mana base, five-color mana base, which, of course, you have to then take out the basics which are awesome. And the reason is because I wanted to be able to have Xanad Swarms, but even with Xanad Swarm post-sport, I wasn't able to reliably beat Landstill. So I finally decided, okay, let me try and build it like Burning Tendrils with the Oath package, Oath Crystal brand package and all that. And I, I actually managed to make it work and it was very good, very consistent. And that's what I ended up playing played with a bunch of pitch counter spells. I have multiple misdirections, force of wills and multiple mental missteps. Um, and I tested it against a huge gauntlet and it was just my best deck. Um, what's I think most um, interesting is that a number of other players came to a similar conclusion about the effectiveness of oath oath, Function in the landstone matchup like four tinkers. You know it's very hard for them to stop, and if they do stop it, it's because they use a tactic like graft diggers cage. And so what all the oath decks are doing is they're developing sort of secondary strategies to deal with cage. So um, Greg Fenton's oath deck has two show and tells main deck, and it has the time ball combo, so it can go in either direction. Uh, Brian Demars and Paul Masriato's deck had um, tinker for blightsteel, although that does not actually beat cage, um, but they have an ancient grudge and a of other things. Um, my deck has a lots of answers to k the, the first and most important answer is I against certain decks not all I can sideboard into the maniac laboratory maniac which beats cage as we talked about before because you oath up the maniac you draw it you play it. Next turn you oath and you win the game because they played this cage it, they are less likely to have a counterspell for the maniac and if they do counter the maniac you obviously don't oath again but I have a bunch of other answers besides I have four burning wishes so I can burning wish for show and tell um, and unlike Greg's deck which has two show and tells main deck show and tell is rather narrow in his deck if, if you draw it and you don't have the the, uh, the gristle brand, it's basically just pitch fodder to force um, whereas in mine I can with four burning wish I can get get it a lot more consistently. Um, the other thing I can do is I can burning wish for shattering spree, which I definitely have done a number of times. in that makes and shattering spree is functionally uncounterable counterable if you have enough red mana to replicate it. Um, so I just think my deck, my deck was um, positioned to deal with uh, Oath Hate. But more importantly, I thought my deck was very well positioned in the metagame. Because it's a combo deck, I can sort of race the aggro control decks. I can. I, I only need to win the turn before they do. Um, it's also very strong against Shops, because it has all of the four Hercule's Recalls and three Ancient Tombs post-board, and all I have to do is resolve a Hercule's or, or an Oath. Win most games against shops. It's very good against dredge because of its speed and the and the draw sevens like time twister. Um, and it's it's uh very good against control because of the efficiency of oath and all my pitch counter magic. Um, and not to mention the four burning wishes mean consistent access to well as well tested against a huge gauntlet and it was just it was just my best performing deck. It attacked the metagame from I think all these really vulnerable angles and it continues to do so. So that's sort of my <laughs> in five minutes summary of my entire prep.
0: <laughs> Echoing your same question of me, how would
1: you change the deck if you had the event to play again? Actually, I, I did play it this past weekend again at Eudaimonia and I got top four. The um, I lost... To Eric Campusano because he had three null rods um, and I was not exactly sh- with he was playing bug tempo and I lost to him and I wasn't exactly sure um, what he was playing a number you know and so I I made some sideboarding errors and a couple tactical at least one or two tactical mistakes um, but um, I I really the only thing I was sort of toying with and you probably remember this Kevin I was debating whether the third mental misstep should be a Lion's Eye Diamond main deck or a Mox Opal. Mox Opal gives you a lot of mm-hmm. consistency in terms of opening hands, but it's the, the Lion's Eye Diamond, which is it really r- amps up the Burning Wish feature of the deck. And the third mental misstep, I, I, which I ultimately went with and have been using, I use because it's such a good answer to Spell Snare and to Grafticker's Cage, which are two things that you expect when you're playing Oath. So I think, you know, any of those would be fine. This depends on the metagame. I think the deck is really, really good and that's what my, obviously my article, my recent article is about. Um I'm curious what your perspectives are on my deck. You've seen it. You saw me building it.
0: I think The card Oath of Druids is a fascinating microcosm of everything that's going on in Vintage. And I think your deck is was very well positioned. I think it's no surprise that a number of players, our teammates notwithstanding, came up with different but obviously similar goals and, and put together and played Oath decks. I think it's no surprise that a handful of players did quite well and that one made top eight. I think your deck was very well, well conceived for the very reasons that you described its position in the metagame uh, vis-a-vis your ability to race certain decks and then have Oath as just a, a tactical yeah. nightmare for other decks. And in a similar sense about how I wanted to have uh, game-winning plays, I wanted to have access to Key Vault and Tinker Colossus and a control deck. I think it's very defensible to take that approach to not only the metagame, but also to a a, a large tournament. And I think that Oath, in general, I mean, Oath as a broad category of decks, like Greg Fenton's, like yours, like Brian and Paul's, I think... That it is a top contender, and I think anyone who's preparing for the format right now should seriously consider it both as an opponent and as a deck to play.
1: I guess what I'm suggesting though is that my oath deck in particular is one of the oath decks that's best positioned to deal with Oath hate, you know, and not just because of the maniac, yeah. but I mean also I mean I expect to see some more ley line of sanctities pop up. I have, you know, the the three nature's claims and chain of vapor in my sideboard, and the Hercules, and the Shattering Spree. Yeah. But I also have all these other divergent lines, whereas the control deck can only go, like, Key Vault if, if its Oath is shut down or Show and Tell. I can do all of these things, like mm-hmm. Burning Wishing for Tendrils. I can play Necropotence, Bargain, draw sevens. Another thing that's, I think, really powerful about about my deck is that it mulligans so well. An Oath, to some extent, does this naturally. You can mulligan to a four-card hand. And if you have Oath, you can play it on turn two and, and recoup all of the lost card attacks. My deck. That's doubly true for Mm -hmm. because I can play a draw seven. I can play necro. I have all these free counterspells to protect my 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 threats. And burning wish just provides so much flexibility and consistency.
0: Um, You know, I think uh, the flip side to what you're saying is that it is definitely possible to build oath that is not well positioned in the metagame. (laughs) You can construct an oath deck that looks perfectly fine on paper, but it still can fold to what everyone else is playing because most good vintage players are prepared for oath in their sideboard and you will face real hate in the form of cage and other things round after round after round.
1: I mean I won I won countless games. Now, I played this in deck in three tournaments with the Maniac post board. And people people don't really know when that what's coming in for sure and when it's not. I mean I have this sort of set of heuristics in mind. But the other thing is in testing I learned a lot and I shared this with you is playing around mind break crap is really a big thing. And so if you have a hand that for example has let's say Mana Crypt, mocks land time twister or draw seven that actually just to play the mana crypt in the mm-hmm. land and cast the time twister, rather than getting the small advantage from playing that one mox because there's just insufficient mind break traps out there. But what I found is that in, in testing, it's not that hard to play around if you just are attentive to it.
0: Uh, yeah, I would agree, and I think that it takes a pretty practiced hand to to get to the point of being comfortable denying yourself resources in the way you just described in order to play around it, but. When push comes to shove, you do that analysis enough and you'll find exactly. that it's worth it every time.
1: I, um... I had really interesting matches. My entire report is on in my article, so I won't recount it all, but I, I did want to draw attention to a couple things. My feature match is round four, and it's a really fun feature match to watch. I think I've watched it probably three times. It's it's just really exciting. It's, <laughs> it's, it's The fir- the first game is so cool because I mulliganed a four, and my opening hand was, was Telerian Academy, Oath of Druids, Misdirection, Force of Will, which is a nice hand of four, <laughs> but you know, no guarantee that's actually going anywhere. My opponent kept his hand of seven, and... It's, a, he was also on the play. He played underground sea, Voltaic He and passed the turn. I drew Mox Pearl, which was really nice because it turned on my Academy. So I played the Pearl on the Academy. On turn two, he played Cavern of Souls naming human. So I thought, okay, he's either on Blue Angels or Bomberman, but he passed the turn. Mm-hmm. I drew a City of Brass and I may have made a mistake, but I decided to play it. But the key decision I made was not to play the Oath. And the commentators were kind of like, well, why didn't he play Oath? And, and Brandy, sort of you know explained to the, to the 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 uh, audience that i that i surmise he was playing with creatures so i might as well let him play a creature to help me trigger my oath which is exactly what happened because on turn three he played a polluted delta which he used to find tundra and he tapped all his mana and cast trinket mage
0: <laughs> oh so good that's so good what in a certain he didn't search up his main deck cage did he
1: Yeah, and he quote walked into my trap as Randy put it. He got Black Lotus as predicted, um, but and then you know so I'm all ready to play my oath with Force of Will backup and presumably win this game. But it got even better because I drew Ancestral Recall on turn three, so I had City Academy Pearl. I tapped the Academy and played Ancestral. Drew three cards that were you know irrelevant. This was just force bait, frankly, right? I drew Soul Ring, Dark Ritual, and Wheel, and I played the Soul Ring and cast Oath. and the reason I played the Soul Ring is because since he didn't misstep the ancestral, I presume he didn't have misstep at all.
0: Yeah, agreed.
1: But on turn four there was a little bit of controversy because he used he he, he used a lotus and the cavern of souls to cast Oriak, but the cover sheet noted he had a Tesseret in hand. So if he had played Tezzeret he could just find time vault, of course, I would force the Tezzeret. I think he did the absolute right thing. He Cavern of Souls made his salvagers uncounterable and he had exactly two mana to recur the Lotus and he could go infinite. But I forced the Lotus.
0: Interesting. Uh,
1: stopping. Yeah.
0: One of the few times when that is the relevant and correct exactly. play.
1: Exactly. So I oped up Gristlebrand and then won on the spot. Uh but again that's an example of how you can come back from a, with a four part hand. Um this past weekend I won in, in Eudaimonia, I won a top eight matchup. Game one, I mulliganed to four and I won. And it was because I resolved, I... The first spell got countered, but I resolved the Wheel of Fortune and then just got right back in it. Um, game two mm-hmm. in this feature match, though, is really fascinating. Um, turn one, my opening hand, I mulliganed to six. It was Mox Pearl, Demonic Tutor, Forbidden Orchard, Lotus Petal, Time Walk, Brainstorm. My opponent plays Flooded Strand, Mana Crypt, and passes the turn. And there's some controversy as to why he plays Mana Crypt. I think it's the right play. I have a lot of draw sevens. I drew Burning Wish, and I played Pearl, Orchard, and had four options. I could play Brainstorm, Time Walk, Demonic Tutor, or Burning Wish i just i decided to play the time walk wow. because i want to use brainstorm and i want to dig um i played time walk and i drew time twister on my time walk turn which i think validated bren's decision to play the mana crypt but i, but I executed my plan i played huh. brainstorm instead of the time twister i drew orchard academy and vampire tutor by the way one of the coolest parts in the entire coverage is when i when i saw academy and both chris and randy are like academy wow And it's not that academy is that, it's not that academy is that insane, (laughs) but when you have old school players who are like on the pro tour and active when academy, right, the academy decks were at their prime, academy will always be that sort of iconic card, you know? And so.
0: Man. I wish they'd watch my top eight match. <laughs> um,
1: but this this man, moment right here, where <laughs> right where I have I have just brainstormed, I have like maximal complexity for a deck like this, and it's really easy to get lost in the maze of options, right? I mean, I have two tutors, three tutors, now Burning Wish, this draw seven, and I have to figure out what my line of play is, and I have to figure out what I'm going to put back with Brainstorm. It's pretty pretty complicated. <laughs> and Randy and Chris are asking each other what they do, and they're like, uh, "This is the kind of situation where you really." Really need to know what how to play this deck <laughs> that's,
0: that's great that that happened on camera too i like it
1: i think i put back uh orchard and burning wish and i played the academy i tapped it for blue blue and i tapped the pearl and i cast time twister and this is one of the the i think the few times the commentators were confused by what i was doing do you do you, can you understand why i played the time twister there kevin
0: as opposed to playing what else? Uh,
1: any of the other cards. I could could have Burning Wish for something or Demonic Tutored for something with Vamp Well,
0: as the well. Time Twister is maximally uh, powerful if you do it up front, but it's also the best card to get countered.
1: Exactly. That's why I did it. I mean, he's only had one turn. I was not expecting Time Twister to, res- to resolve. resolve. I thought, I mean, if I play, tap the Academy, I tap the Pearl, I play Time Twister, he can force it, Fluster Storm it, or Spell Pierce it. And I figured if he counters mm-hmm. it, then I have that much more leeway next turn. I'll draw, you know, the, whatever, the, uh, Orchard. I can play Demonic Tutor O. If that gets countered, then next turn I can Burning Wish for Dogmask and Van.
0: And your tutors get better the more information you have.
1: Yeah, exactly. But So I was really surprised the Time Twister resolved. That was the one thing they didn't understand. i just explaining that now. Um, I was just trying to draw out a counter. <laughs> uh, I, was, I wasn't trying to win that turn. Off the Time Twister, I drew Force of Will, Dark Ritual, Dark Ritual, Oath of Druids, Oath of Druids, Necropotence, and Burning Wish. Um, so I sacrificed the Petal, which really hurts my production with Academy, and I cast Dark Ritual, and he misstepped it. And my plan was to play the Necropotence. So now I only have Pearl, Orchard, and Academy in play, which I'm just, you know, obviously going to try and get these out the Druids into play. But on turn two, he attacked me with, the to- with tokens. He drew Library, and the commentators, this is another second thing they were confused about. He played Underground Sea when he didn't have Mana Drain, and they didn't understand why he didn't play Library, because I just played Time Twister. But what they forgot... And what wasn't coverage, is that he had just mental misstep my, my dark ritual. So when he drew, if he drew and played the library, he would only have six cards in it. So he couldn't actually use the library immediately. So playing the C was actually, I think, absolutely the correct play there. Unless he just wants to play the library and do, you know, and not feign the drain and, um, hope that he can use library next turn. Uh, so I untapped. On my second turn, I untapped and drew another Burning Wish and decided just to play the Oath. This time, he forced my Oath, pitching Flusterstorm. On turn three, he attacked me with three Spirit Tokens and played an Island and cast Dark Confidant. I drew Mock Sapphire and decided to play another Oath of Druids. This time, it resolved. Um, on turn four... Bren revealed a, a Tundra of the Dark Confidant and was at 14 life, having lost Mana roll. He attacked me for 6, sending me to 8. I untapped an Oathed Up Laboratory Mania. <laughs> I drew another Burning Wish, and I played it for Diminishing Returns. And the commentators here were confused at first. I didn't understand why. But the only reason I, I Burning Wish for Diminishing Returns was because I wanted a blue spell to pitch to force. That's it. And Bran, on turn 5, he revealed Graft Digger's Cage, which the commentator said was, quote, a little bit late. And then he drew, <laughs> and then he drew Trinket Mage. He played the Cage. Which, of course, I didn't care about at this point, because all I need to do is deck and win. But he played the Tricket Mage for Aether Spellbomb, which he immediately casts, in which I force of will. Had I not Burning Wish for that diminishing returns, I would not have been able to force it. He attacked me with Confidant and a bunch of Spirit Tokens. I blocked a token, fell to two life, but I untapped Trigger. Open. And that's
0: a textbook example, really. I mean, there's a lot going on in that game, but it's a perfect example of the value of the Lab Man option. Yes.
1: yes. I mean, if he had had the cage a turn before, I still would have been able to do it the exact same way. It would have functioned the same. I did, I did want to just briefly mention the next two rounds, because I was 4-0, and I, frankly, I thought I was on a collision course with you.
0: One more round different than you would have been.
1: Yeah. Round five, we, I played Greg Fenton, who ended up making the top four, and we both mulliganed to five in game one. And I actually resolved turn two necropotence, Kevin. Wow. But I lost the game.
0: unprecedented. It really
1: is. It's the first time playing a deck with Force of Will and Necropotence that I've lost with Necro. And the reason was because I couldn't decide how much to Necro for. And because we both Mulligan to five, I felt like I was going to need to grind this out. I wanted to get a small burst and then next turn one more burst and try and win the the following turn. He... Had played turn one key and I necroed for seven and I did not see despite having three mental missteps in four force walls I did not see a single one and I only necroed for seven going to thir- going to um, twelve life and I didn't see a single pitch counter spell. and he had vampiric tutor end of his turn and he was able to assemble the key vault wow. he had mana crypt. But I still didn't lose just yet, because he had Mana Crypt on turn one, and he fell to three life before he finally was able to Oath up Gristlebrand. If in the turn he oath up Gristlebrand, <laughs> had he lost the Mana Crypt roll, I would have won that Wow! Game. But if I had Necroed for two more, I would have had Mental Misstep to stop his map, which allowed him to assemble the combo. And if I had Necroed for 12, I would have had four Sand Mental Misstep.
0: You know, if they had Unrestricted Necro instead of Gush, you might have written a whole book about that. <laughs> I
1: know. Necro- <laughs> <laughs>
0: understanding necro um
1: i won game two which was a really great game in which i um Hardcast Crystal Brand. Game three was really fascinating though, um, but frustrating because he had turn one pithy needle and he named necropotence and I had dark ritual necropotence in my opening. <laughs> hand. Uh, I was, and, and it was weird because it, it forced me, I had nature's claim, I decided I was gonna nature's claim his pithy needle immediately, which is what I did. He then ended up forcing my necropotence. I demonic for ancestral and he drained my ancestral. Um and we were in this like orchard race where I had played an orchard and so I thought it was safe to go for the Oath, but he was sandbagging an orchard. I played the Orchard first, so I had a slight advantage, but he was sandbagging an orchard and he played it and he was able to overwhelm me. And then he drew a third orchard. Oh, yeah. Geez. And it came to this position where I was able to resolve burning wish for Yogwill after draining out all his counter magic. And my will resolved and I had basically one uh line that opened into a fork. And I need to figure out which path of the fork to take. And what happened was, I, post will, all I could do was play either nature's claim my own oath, with basically no cards in my hand, and him having, me having more tokens, right? Or I mm-hmm. could dark ritual for demonic tutor, demonic tutor for black lotus, and cast black lotus to play the time walk and ancestral recall that were in my grave. Fascinating.
0: What would you- do? Fascinating. Yeah. What was the token situation like? You said you had an advantage, but how many?
1: He had three orchards I had one. We both had three tokens, oh. but he was about to obviously... He, I had Oath in play, so he was about to give me a- Oh,
0: I see. Boy, well, the Ancestral into Time Walk play is quite risky. I mean, that is. seems it very seems low percentage to me.
1: Well, I thought about it for a while, and I decided the Time Walk Ancestral play is actually somewhat high percentage. How so? Okay, well, first of all, I brought in a Nature's Claim and a Chain of Vapor. So I have, not including the one that's in my graveyard, I have a lot of draw sevens where I can just go off. I also have, if I draw Gristle Brand, I'll be able to win as well, because I had at this point multiple Moxon in play and lands and I think Sol Ring so I have like basically if I draw one more land and Gristlebrand I'll be able to hard cast Gristlebrand and just go off that way so I just thought about I it see. for a long time I thought this actually is a pretty good percentage play it, it, I thought it was probably I just thought that the problem is the Nature's Claim play I destroy my own oath but I'm not going to be able to win that way and I wasn't confident that i would top deck better than he did. so i thought the time walk ancestral play puts the ball in my court and it actually worked out perfectly i drew gristlebrand city of brass and Tolarian Academy. Oh, all i have to do is take my extra turn time walk turn play city of brass hardcast cast gristlebrand and draw uh-huh. seven all i have to do i take my time walk turn i draw something irrelevant and it, i drop academy and i gasp in horror
0: oh man and you didn't have enough black
1: i didn't have enough black i only three black in play and plenty of colorless like five or six colorless I think I even, I think I may have drawn Mana Vault to that turn. Um, and the, the really effed up part about it is that my top cards had everything I needed to win. Oh, jeez. Not only could I have gone off, but I also had in my top seven, I had Chain of Vapor, which I could easily play. Um, and the Chain of Vapor, I, I could have bounced my, and a bunch of other stuff, <laughs> you know, to, to prevent him from othing and just easily win at mm-hmm. to bench my mana. Um, yeah. And, and this is such a mechanical, simple play. And I, I just, Can't explain my mistake. But anyway, that's what happened. I blundered and I I lost. I mean, at least the the first game, you know, I echoed for seven. That's that's a that's a mistake, but it's you know at least understandable given the situation. This was just totally (laughs) unexpected.
0: Well, in your defense, I would say that tapping four discrete mana sources to pay the four black mana on Gristlebrand is probably one of the the least common things that that deck does.
1: Yeah, and and in (laughs) Academy, playing Academy is such a different play that I just. Anyway, I had a so I fell to, to four and one, and then I played against Keeper. And I'll just very briefly summarize something that happened. In the first game, my opening hand was actually Tinker, Otha Druids, Black Lotus, Mox Ruby, Gemstone Mine, and another wow. and another spell. I played both Black Lotus. I played both Tinker and Otha Druids, and they got hit by two Mindbreak Break traps. Wow! <laughs> so I never got back in that game, but. Once I realized what he was playing, I'm like, okay, I'm fine. So I, I destroyed him in game two. In game three, I sideboarded out the Gristle Brands for Maniac and Chain of Vapor, or so I thought. And he had Cage and, and Gorilla Shaman. And I set up this perfect plan. It was actually quite amazing. So here, here's what happened. So in game three, I cyborg out the gristle brands for L- Laboratory Maniac and Chain of Vapor. That's what I believe at least. And he basically opens the game with graptiger's Cage and Gorilla Shaman. And he's like that has very little counter magic or no counter magic at the critical at the critical point in the game because I've drawn it out. And I have the, the the key situation here is my board is City of Brass, Forbidden Orchard, and Oath of Druids in play, and my hand is Dark Ritual, Lotus Petal, and mm-hmm. Time Wall. Okay? And he is he plays he just plays Tesseret to get Time Vault, and he's gonna win. When I go to activate the oath, and my plan here is very simple. I'm gonna put the maniac. I'm gonna put the maniac on top on top of my deck because it can't come into play because of his cage. I'm gonna draw it. I'm gonna go past and cast Dark Ritual. I'm gonna play the Pedal. I'm gonna cast uh, Maniac, and with my last mana, play Time Walk. I'm gonna mm. untap and win the game. Right. Yep. Very simple. I had sculpted the perfect hand to win that way. Unfortunately, when I go to Oath, there is no Maniac in my deck. And in fact, it turns out my deck is 58 cards. I had left the Maniac and the Chain of Vapor in my sideboard.
0: You had 17 card sideboard? Yep. Ah, <sighs> heartbreaking. Yeah,
1: it really was, especially after the previous loss. So I'm X2 and I just, I'm done. I'm totally on tilt at this point. ah. <laughs> uh just like so frustrating usually i pile out five piles so i see that i have 60 cards but for some reason that game i think i did nine i just didn't notice and so i you know two game, two matches lost because of stupid mechanical errors in one case playing the wrong land In another case the most ridiculous possible way to lose a game besides <laughs> a misreg or something stupid like that so i'm that that was my epic meltdown oh vintage champs. i'm sorry
0: to hear that the this vintage champs This Vintage Champs was a marathon unlike any other before it.
1: Yeah, and the... The, the jet lag I had from coming from the West Coast definitely didn't help. I was pretty exhausted the whole time, and I just did not have the stamina. And I don't know. I just I felt like my deck was I mean, it was definitely good enough to take me to the top eight and win the whole thing. I was very well positioned. I'm just I was just devastated by what happened. Well,
0: I I feel for you. You developed a good deck though, and I think your prep was spot on. Yeah. But not to end on a downer, people can read your tournament report in your article, right? Yes. And did you cover it all in your article? The similarities between your oath list and all the others you described, especially uh, Brian and Paul's.
1: I didn't really talk as much about theirs because I my my article is so dense. I talk about my my latest doomsday deck, my pitch long deck with with the the basic land mana base and the four burning wishes. Mm-hmm. No, I, um, there's a, a lot a lot of ground to cover. I'm
0: curious what you think. I mean, you clearly played your deck again in the next tournament. Yes. What do you think though? Uh, is oath Is Oath its own pillar of the format now?
1: It's hard to say. It depends, I think, on what you mean by pillar.
0: In the Null Rod, Mana Drain, Dark Ritual
1: sense. Yeah, I mean, I know that people use that as a pillar, but I've never been quite comfortable with describing those ways. You know, I Mm -hmm. I prefer to describe the format in terms of, um, you know, slow control, combo control, aggro control, dredge, workshop, and combo.
0: Sure. I guess to put it another way, though, is Oath a family of decks now? For sure.
1: For sure it is. I think that's definitely the case. And I think that's what I was alluding to earlier is, and I may have sort of abbreviated my analysis a bit too much, but what I was trying to suggest is that you have Oath decks that are all trying to to sort of respond to cards like Cage in different ways by mm-hmm. different secondary plan- plans and different sort of orientations towards the meta game, and I think you know, like I, I just think that mine is just the most robust, and that it has the most avenues around these block these blocks, you know, these blockages. Mm-hmm. I think Paul and in Paul's and, and Brian suffers a little bit in that respect. Greg at least has you know the key vault combo and sh- two show and tells, but show and tells, like I said, are very situationally narrow in opening hand if you don't have. Bristlebrand. They're basically just, okay, I guess I'll pitch the force. Whereas my deck has consistent access to show and tell and consistent access to ways to remove cage with burning wish for shattering spree and consistent alternative routes to victory mm-hmm. i can just burning wish for tendrils i can burning wish for empty the warrens I mean, there's lots of things that my deck is capable of doing not to mention just overwhelm i can you know overwhelming you with necro raw sevens yeah. bargain things like well, that.
0: well given that we are at our longest point now between now and the next eternal weekend hypothetically and that I have no particular testing agenda. I think I'm going to be taking a look at your list and maybe forcing myself to play a list like yours in an upcoming tournament, possibly in Ohio next month.
1: Yeah, I think my deck is not only really well positioned in the metagame, but I think if you're a skilled vintage player, it's a very rewarding deck and, and a lot of fun. Uh, I, I think it's, it's going to be a hot deck going forward. I think that the thing that, and, and it has answers to everything because, you know, I have this ancient tomb Hercules package in the sideboard that allows me to beat the, the, you know, the Melrod, um, cage package. I think, you know, I think my deck actually is very, very well positioned against Joe Lim's deck as well. I, you know, you only have to win the turn before he can and mm-hmm. I have all the pitch counter magic in the process to protect my ball. My Speaking bombs. of
0: Joel's deck, I think we want to go now and talk a little bit more about the overall results from the Vintage Champs.
1: Yeah, we're going to, before we turn to the top eight deck list, I'd like to just make a couple of general comments about the coverage. I really encourage our listeners to go and watch the matches. The first match is fascinating. It's Jayco versus another player. What I have about that match is that Jayco's power is full art, alters of a treasure map, <laughs> his power line. And I hope that when Jayco posts this podcast that he'll, Returnal Central, he'll post photos of his treasure map moxon because it's really awesome.
0: Yeah. I was especially pleased, and I smiled just to myself and then I talked to some other friends about it, but I was especially pleased that Jaco was featured so early in the event because his cards that he plays with are such a great ambassador for the format it's hilarious, and I just think anyone who's uh, there are you know the the alters card altos market is is growing in popularity, and I would not suggest that our show is any kind of representative of that. But the point is is that if you have interest in that sort of thing and you're interested in vintage, man, watching him play that feature match is just a awesome overlap between those two notions. For
1: sure. when you put all his power nine together, it makes a really cool treasure map.
0: It is beautiful. <laughs> That's what
1: that was. Round two is Mark La versus Dredge. And Mark is just a master with his ravenous traps and being very patient. In one of the games he causes his opponent Ken to become decked.
0: <laughs> he but, he actually but, pulled it off? Mm-hmm. Oh I didn't know that he'd pulled it off. I talked to him after that round and we shared some strategy and, and experience about playing with Ravenous Trap versus Dredge. And it is very interesting because I, I think a very experienced Dredge player can punish you if you have Ravenous Trap and not much else. Yeah. And But at the same time, it takes a lot of experience as a Dredge player to, to properly punish someone for just using the traps. Right.
1: Right. And and it's, it's, he's just a master. It's just a fun watch for yeah. that. The uh, third round is Reed Duke versus Rich Matuzio, and um, it's really interesting. I think Rich actually sideboarded out his World gorger Dragon combo, games two and three for the Tezzeret combo, and I'm curious whether you think that's the right call against Reed Duke's TPS deck, whether you would keep in World Gordier Dragon Boy, combo. You, you have to assume, though,
0: that even out of a pretty heavily focused draw seven style combo deck like Reed's, that he's it, if seeing the dragon combo in game one is going to cause him to bring in his dredge hate. Yeah, well that's what. He so did.
1: in game two he brought in all the graveyard hate and he lost it as a result. But what I'm saying is for game three I think I would have brought the worldgorger dragon combo back in.
0: At that point it just becomes a game. It's like a shell game. You're reading your opponent. If they immediately dive into their sideboard, then so do you. But that's part of the art of playing minus six. Is it's a mind game like no other when it comes to sideboarding. Yeah. I've, if I was playing minus six, I would re-sideboard every game. <laughs>
1: so, uh,
0: exactly. So it's not a matter of do you re-sideboard, it's a matter of as you're doing it, which route do you choose, and then at that point you're reading your opponent. So if you are doing your re-sideboarding just by rote, trying to give away as little information as possible, and your opponent isn't sideboarding at all, yeah. well then then you don't. You stick with Tezzeret. But if Reed reaches for his sideboard to start making some adjustments, well, then you just have to try and assess what kind of player Reed is and what choice he's going to make.
1: Yeah, I mean, Reed really got boned by having all these Tormod scripts that were useless in Game 2. And so I, I assume that he would probably make some modifications like that, and I would just go back all in on the draft. Drive-
0: <laughs> it's obviously, it's it's kind of foolish to analyze it further than that, I think. Because
1: but, but the thing is in my my view is that you're playing a combo deck mirror, and the World Gold or Dragon combo is slower, but it's more resilient. It's about a turn slower or whatever potentially, but you have a lot more disruption, and so i I like being on that plan in the combo mirror,
0: yeah, well, y- your position is well founded, and I think you can make a pretty reliable case for that. And I'm guessing that in different circumstances, i'm sorry, similar circumstances, but different examples, that Rich probably goes in one direction or the other.
1: Right. Round four was my feature match. Round five is a feature match of Rug versus Hate Bears. It's actually, I, I hate to say it, but that's probably one of the most, the more boring matches I watched. Um, your match was interesting. My match is, I think, completely fascinating from that, just the, your perspective. Um, round, I'm skipping ahead. Round nine is Roland versus Paul. Ro- Paul just gets beat around, beat around by Roland quite a bit. Paul may, might have made a play mistake third game. The quarterfinals is, is, interesting. It's Joel versus Greg. Um, the first game was defined because Greg stripped Joel's only island and Joel kept a hand that had counter magic and ancestral recall. <laughs> and, uh, and then he was able to protect his oath with, with double counter double force. In the third game, Joel drew very strong. He had Lotus, Sapphire, and Ancestral. And Greg used his force to stop Joel's ancestral pitching show and tell, which is a, I think the most questionable play. Uh, hmm. he still drew, um, the very next draw, after forcing the goals into ancestral, he drew Gristlebrand.
0: Oh, so he, okay, I got you. Had
1: he, had he just waited, had he let Ancestral resolve and just played his outs, I think he wins that game by show and telling Gristlebrand. I
0: don't, I'm not sure I agree with you there for a couple of reasons. One, you already cited the fact that if you have show and tell in your hand and no Gristlebrand, it is just Force Fodder. Yeah. I and mean, that's a default play for that deck. So the notion that Gristlebrand was on top of his library, I think is, it's just simply results oriented.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, you have to see the game in detail, but I think he also had a, I'm sorry, um, a Graftigger's Cage in play too. So mm, both was out. I see. Well, point.
0: that lends some more credence to keeping the show and tell around. Yeah. But on the flip side though, the, the Joel's Murfolk deck has so few opportunities to overpower you in the, in a vintage sense of overpowering you. Yeah. That going after his ancestral just seems like a winning bet every time, yeah, <laughs> in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I mean, but the thing is though, ancestral, I mean, what you're really saving your force for is their counter magic. And so, I, I, ancestral in his deck is one of the least threatening ancestrals there is. Well, what, I, that's a good
0: point. When you're playing Greg's Oath deck, I see your point. Yeah. You can let several creatures out of that deck resolve in the early turns because it plays to your advantage. Exactly. Yeah, I see your point.
1: Um, but the, the, probably the, one of the most interesting matches is the finals, which is AJ Grasso's Rug Delver with Pyromancer versus Joel Limbs. And I just want to deconstruct, uh, it, it's a very brief match. It's definitely worth watching. It's only 15 minutes. Game one, AJ's opening hand is Black Lotus, Volcanic Island, Scalding Tarn. Those are his three mana sources. Force, Spell Pierce, Gush, Goif, and a red spell, which I think may be Pyromancer. Here's the game with Cavern Curse Catcher. And AJ, plays Lotus, Volcanic Island, and Goy. I and mean, I think this play is very interesting. What is your assessment of his line?
0: I have no experience with either of these texts in tournament play in Vintage, so I'm not sure what... Delver's overall plan is against Merfolk. Mm-hmm. If he truly had young Pyromancer, though, that seems like it must be huge in that matchup.
1: You, you should play that instead of leaving. Yes. Up.
0: If that's your plan to resolve an early threat, then I would definitely have chosen Pyromancer. Also, I just want to point out that playing Volcanic Island over the Fetchland there is also a mistake.
1: Yeah, I think, that's the, I think that is the number one mistake. I'm glad you mentioned that, because he has Gush in hand, and if he plays Tarn, even if he doesn't want to play the second creature, if he plays Tarn, he's guaranteed Guaranteed to be able to gush if Joel has a wasteland. And that gush will protect his mana and also potentially be an important tactic against island walkers. Especially yeah. since he has Koypen yeah. For
0: all of those reasons that you just cited, you, you definitely put the fetch land first there.
1: So what actually happened was Joel played turn two Lotus, which AJ tried to spell Pierce, but... Instead, Joel just used the curse catcher, and this actually prompted... This is another interesting play that both Randy and Chris really disagreed with. Is (laughs) Joel... A.J force of will pitching gush on the lotus hmm. so this leaves aj's hand entirely empty except for Tom and the red card if yeah.
0: that red card is actually young pyromancer I, then this whole analysis goes out the window but so, so so joel had no follow-up after his lotus was forced
1: no no there is a land joel plays wasteland on the volcanic island oh
0: <laughs> i think hold on i want i'm going to back up to forcing that Lotus.
1: There's multiple lines of play here we can deconstruct.
0: Because there one argument is that forcing that Lotus slows your fish playing opponent down significantly. If the Lotus resolves and Joel has a second land, then we're looking at possibly two lords that turn, and if there's another curse catcher, possibly even three more creatures. So there's a very good case to be made for stemming the onslaught.
1: Stanning onslaught
0: yeah, Joel could if that Lotus oh, step, resolves. Joel, yeah, could end, exactly. Joel could end that turn with three four fours in play. Yeah, I, for all we know, there's there's no doubt that there is merit to forcing Lotus. But uh, on on turn two, a turn two Lotus tells you a number of things, though, because the turn two Lotus tells you that Joel didn't have it on turn one. Yep, and what that means is he didn't keep a one land hand that just played Curse Catcher. He has another land. So now you're not talking about the difference between 1 and 4 mana. You're talking about the difference between 2 and 5. And if you're not cutting him off and he already has cavern, then you could make the case that you're forcing the Lotus because it's the only thing you're really going to be able to force. But that ignores the notion of protecting your own spells, which I also don't agree with. That Curse Catcher was already gone, or was going right then. It, It went before he made the force. I think I would hold on to that force.
1: Well, the the main thing that Randy and Chris kept saying is 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 losing the gush worth countering oh, the Lotus. Oh,
0: I'm sorry, <laughs> I wasn't even factoring that in. That's no, that's huge. That gush is is the reason you play that deck over
1: Murpho. Yeah, <laughs> and, and this is and gush is such a huge tactical play here because it yeah. it, it allows him to. You know, force Joel to walk into it, walk into it. But once he once he made the mistake of playing the Volk first, I think that the value of Gush diminishes. Even though Joel mm-hmm. doesn't, even though AJ doesn't know that Joel is about to wasteland his own land, the Gush still loses a little bit of value because you you think he may mm-hmm. do that. I think I think. Here's what I think. Okay, I think this entire game turns on the simple fulcrum of the misplay of the first land. Now AJ claims that that he that that was he thinks it's the right play actually to play the Volk because he wanted to gain tempo. My view, the tempo is not nearly worth it here. You get one free swing of Goy. That doesn't even remotely overcome the disadvantage the the, the lost value from not being able to gush and from losing your land and everything else that flows from it which which you'll see in a moment aj aj doesn't draw another mana source until too late and so is unable to play the goifs he draws right i think the line of play that i think is more defensible it's really interesting here is you can so again he spell pierces the lotus joel sacrifices curse catcher Stop the spell pierce, which is arguably fine because you, you want to remove it, right? So you're trading spell pierce for creature. But another mm-hmm. line of play, if you really want to stop the Lotus, you could actually just leave him with just curse catcher this turn. If you force the Lotus pitching spell pierce. Hmm. Then you could pay for the curse catcher with your land, your Volk. If he tried to do it, and that would actually make him make a mistake, because in that case Joel should have wastelanded the volcanic island first to prevent you from being able to pay for the curse catcher. So that line of play actually puts the sort of the, the burden of proper play on Joel, and you get to preserve your God. Interesting.
0: I think it's very defensible.
1: In any case, AJ in AJ drew Force of Will on his second turn and then played the Tarn and attacked with the four power Goyf. On turn three, Joel played Island Lord of the Port Pearl Trident and then AJ drew Ancestral and he drew Goyf Goyf Land. Again, if he had played the Tarn first, he could have played the Volcanic Island in turn two. He would have been able to Gush in response to a to a turn three Wasteland and he would have been able to Ancestral and fascinating,
0: play Goyf. just fascinating.
1: Um, the way it played out. Joel played Phantasmal Image on turn 4 and Phantasmal Image on turn 5 and, and AJ just died, was squished. But I think had he played the Tarn first, the entire game plays out completely differently. I think AJ, I'm not saying AJ would have won, but I, I think had he forced the Lotus pitching Spell Pierce and played the proper land, I think he has a really good chance of deploying all three goys very quickly and potentially overwhelming overwhelming Joel. If that's a Pyromancer in his hand, Did we even actually
0: better. never see the red card cast in that game? No. It must have been a Pyromancer it. then. Look. let me look at what else is in AJ's list.
1: It's really hard to see that card. Really if it's a lightning bolt, he plays it that
0: game. Yeah, it was not a lightning bolt. So it's either Young Pyromancer or Ancient Grudge. Ancient, Ancient Grudge. Yeah. Let's give AJ the benefit of the doubt and to think that it's Ancient Grudge.
1: Right. The game two was fairly simple, but uh, I'm not going to give you the play-by-play. I suggest you watch it. But basically, AJ um, had... Um, a lightning bolt that he played on the a, a non-phantasmal um, image creature and Joel mental misstep and that was, um had he hit the image, he would have been able to slow the attack a bit. His opening hand was insane. He had Sapphire, Ruby, Volcanic Island, Island, Goyf. Pyromancer and Bolt, Um but wow. his term one, yeah his pr- term one Pyromancer was forced and he and he just was too slow compared to, to Joel's Joel's. Uh, I mean Joel drew ridiculously well. It, it, I still think there's a chance that AJ could have won Game Two had he played Bolt of the image. Um But it seems to me that if AJ is on the play in Game Three, if there is a Game Three, AJ has a lot of good cards in this matchup. He's got j- he's, he's got, got two uh, yeah, he's got and Pyroblasts, yeah, and Pyroblasts. Most bored, and he's on the play. There's a lot of lines where he can win, but I think you know the gushing in response to an attack is such a powerful, potent tactic that he just gave that up for nothing by sacrifice trying to get a little bit of tempo. And and he, not to mention just pitching gush in general. I mean, again, if he had saved in game one, if he had played that differently, he would have drawn the force and ancestral off of <laughs> gush.
0: <laughs> on the flip side, though, Joel's got three dismembers in his sideboard, which are also insane.
1: Yeah, but that. That's true, but those cards, those dismembers are a lot of life, and that's all, yeah, that's all AJ is trying to do.
0: Jite is definitely the Trump, though. Oh, yeah. If Gite gets online, that's incredible. You know, and props to AJ for having that card in his sideboard. I've put together a handful of vintage sideboards in the last two years, and I always want to put Jite in them, and it's always just right on the cusp. And it may be that this is the time for that. I'm not going to say that all of our vintage finals are going to be rug delver and merfolk going forward <laughs> but the simple truth is that jite is an incredible card in that kind of a metagame and it's not just for creature matchups either it has some other tertiary impacts that are fascinating think about what it does against shops or what it does against dredge or what it does against os it, it has lots of interesting applications yeah it's even good against grixis i mean it's, it, it kills every bob that comes out for the rest of the game And it's also very useful if you can get just, just one counter on it or a pair of counters. I mean, it's It's very useful at dispatching Jace with any creature you've got. Yeah, it's
1: just a ridiculous trump in in control matchup. Um, well, now that we're looking at these deck lists, you want to just, just briefly summarize what we've got here?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You want to start with first place and go back or do you want to go the other direction?
1: Yeah, let's start from eight. Let's start, let's start from Joel and down.
0: Well, Joel's list, if you've, Seen vintage merfolk at it all, it's pretty much exactly what you would expect. It's got the caverns, four waste and a strip. His creature base is Curse Catcher, Lord of Atlantis, Master of Pearl Trident, three rejuries, three phantasmal image, one true name nemesis, oh, the Silvergill adept, sorry, one true name nemesis, one waterfront bouncer.
1: It's unfair that waterfront bouncers are merfolk.
0: <laughs> it really is. And then his disruption package is two days, which is interesting, one fluster storm, Forces, three missteps, three null rods, and a steel sabotage. The, this kind of list is, there's not much room for tweaking here. The one true name nemesis, one waterfront bouncer, a couple of counter spells here and there. But this, this deck list is tight, and Joel has a good sideboard. It includes the aforementioned dismembers and one ghost quarter to help put the thumbscrews on. But, uh, this list is, is pretty straightforward if you're familiar with Vintage Fish.
1: Yes. Uh, and, and it also has structural similarities to the, the old fish decks in Vintage, with the, mm-hmm. the, you know, the combo of Countermagic and Null Rods. Um, and now of course Curse Catcher being better than spike tail Hatchling. Um, but this, this deck is a deck that is very well tuned, expertly piloted, and, you know, had a very confident pilot who knew what he was doing, um, in every matchup. I think one of the the craziest things, just a personal observation about the way Joel plays his deck, is he draws a card and puts it in the back of his hand and he reopens his hand and fans it open, looking from the, the um seeing the most recently drawn card last. So it's like he almost like re evaluates his hand from the beginning of his hand to the back sort of adding that new information in last, which is very strange to me. Like, strange because I think you'd want to see the most recent piece of information first to sort of reintegrate that. But it also, I think, suggests a really internal steely patience to be able to sort of delay your, you know, processing of what you've just drawn until like the last possible moment. This
0: being my first experience meeting and playing against Joel, I found it to be a very pleasant, uh, not only did we have a nice time playing against each other, he's a funny guy, nice to play against, but uh, I think he was pretty diligent and practiced in the way he played, and I Found no flaw in in his play during our match.
1: Yeah, well, he did make one mistake in the play against your match, which was that he you didn't see this, but he had a black lotus in his hand and he had Null Rod in play and he discarded a um, master of the pearl trident when he could have just played the lotus. Oh, of, the same yeah,
0: that's I wouldn't have been able to perceive that. Interesting.
1: You no, know, Joel is a, Joel is a really fantastic champion and a really nice guy, and it's clear from his turn report. And we'll post a link to his turn report in our yeah, um, in our show notes.
0: And if we hasn't said it before, congratulations, Joel. So, let's look at second place then, AJ's Rug Delver list, and we've already talked about a lot of the salient details. His creature base is four Delvers, four Goifs, three Pyromancers. Now, he's unlike uh, Benjamin's top eight Rug Delver list. He's the, uh, he's on the Young Pyromancer plan, whereas Benjamin's on the Click and Snapcaster plan. And I would say in the metagame that we observed, starting with the grinders and leading up to the event and the things that really factored into your deck choice and mine, I would say Young Pyromancer is a very good choice in that metagame. Okay. There's lots of bug fish going around and Young Pyromancer really shines there.
1: Yeah, there are a number of oddities here. Pyromancer is definitely very good, but I think Vendillion Click, like I was suggesting earlier, is really good. And the Rugged Elver usually runs one or two clicks and or sometimes runs one or two clicks and I would, I would definitely run a click. I also think it's very strange that this deck doesn't, not only does it not have basics beyond the island in the sideboard or main deck but he's really light on he's really dense in terms of counter spells that are ineffective against workshops so he's got four mm-hmm. mental missteps and three fluster storms and he has three nature's claims in the sideboard instead of ingot chewers, which i'm not really sure i understand he
0: basically went all in on the young pyromancer plan against workshops his main deck answers against workshops basically boil down to the one ancient grudge four Lightning Bolts, which are highly relevant, one Steel Sabotage. Yeah, He's got four Mental Missteps, which you would expect. He's got three Spell Pierce and three Fluster Storm. So he's got a lot of blanks against shops in game one. Exactly. For an archetype that has traditionally preyed on workshops. Yep. And he also has no Wasteland or Strip Mine, which is not always in this stack, but sometimes. And then in the sideboard, as you said, his anti-shop technology is two more Ancient Grudge, two Hercule's Recall, Three natures claim and possibly the GTAs, they'll probably not. So he's in, he's again, he's all in on spells to go with his young pyromancer. It seems pretty clear that AJ either assessed a certain type of shop deck or just assessed a general uh, lack of shop decks in the event and planned it, planned that direction. Mm -hmm. And hey, I I don't know what his opponents were like. Did, Did he write a tournament report?
1: AJ? He did, yeah.
0: Did you happen to read it and see his opponents?
1: Yeah, I did actually give it a careful read. Um, I don't remember, though, off the top of my head.
0: Well, it seems pretty clear to me that if he faced workshops, it probably wasn't many, and he probably, I don't know, had some some compatible draws to make all his heavy spell answers work. I've played yeah. Young Pyromancer against workshops, and I, I know from experience that while if you can get into the mid-game with a configuration like this, then you become very powerful with a Young Pyromancer right. plus Ancient Grudge. But getting into that mid game is tough.
1: Yeah, I, exactly. I just think, you know, th- this deck just looks a little bit heavily geared towards blue decks and a little less towards workshops than I would feel comfortable for. I would, I would at least want like a, I don't know, like a yeah. other basic of an, either the green or the red in the sideboard. He also has
0: zero Trigon Predators, main or side, right. whereas Benjamin has two in his
1: sideboard. I mean, I'm a huge advocate of Gush and Pyromancer, obviously. So, mm-hmm. uh, sure. I just think, I, I, I would, I just think Vendillion Click is amazing right now. I would want one or two of those, and I would want a little bit more for Workshops. I understand Nature's Claim interacts nicely with Pyromancer, but Ingot Shure I think, is pretty important. But
0: We'll see going forward if the Workshop decks are as... Um, it keyed in on Thorn as they have been in the past. What was the popularity of creatures in this top 8? Yeah. You might see a reduction in Thorn. It might be a self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: <laughs> so, so, so moving on, we see Greg Fenton playing Oath. And we've talked a lot about his deck. Greg has been playing pretty much this Oath deck for months now. Um, there isn't I think anything shocking if you've seen Greg's Oath list before, especially the one he top 8 the NYSE with. This is very similar, just a couple of minor tweaks. Um, and We've already mentioned the fact that he supplements Oath with a pair of show and tells in the key vault combo. Um, and he has two abrupt decays main deck and I think 15 or 16 counters. I'd both.
0: like to touch on his singleton strip mine in the main, which a lot of people unfamiliar with the deck or with the format might raise an eyebrow about, but it's similar to how I reached the mana base that I did with my deck. And that is if you treat waste and strip effects more like spells than mana sources, you start to realize how useful they are in several matchups. In an oath deck, for example, they help you win the Orchard War if you're trying to in the mirror. Against control decks, they help rein in things like Mishra's Factory and and, uh, Fairy Conclave that would obviously give you fits in this archetype against land still, not mm-hmm. to mention simple things like fighting back against workshops. It, it actually is reasonable to wasteland a workshop or, or just, to buy back time. Yeah,
1: or just stealing a match like he did against um, uh, Joel in the in, the, in the, uh, semi-gold. Absolutely. The
0: Absolutely. I, had a similar, I had a similar effect with Joel where I stripped him early and aggressively, and it turned out he only had access to one island, so it really bought me a lot of time. hmm so I firmly agree with a singleton strip mine, or maybe even a strip mine and a waste in, in decks like this if you can afford to, because they have lots more applications than just the tempo kind of traditional knee-jerk uses.
1: Let's turn to Reed Duke Stormdeck.
0: Ah, uh, very interesting. Not only this list, but also just the simple notion that Reed Duke played in this event, which is fantastic.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is going to sound a lot you know, more critical than I intended to be, but I, I think that he played far above the, quali- the, the quality of the deck list itself. Uh, <laughs> you know, in, I would agree. In, in his report, Reed said that he used drawn attention to the archetype by reading some of my articles back in, a couple years ago when I was playing Grimlong. But I think there are some pretty obvious problems with this deck list. Um, you know. Um, one, if he's going to play a deck like this, I think he has to play with the forces. If he's going to play it the more aggressive version, then I think he's got to go with Burning Wish. I mean, he has red. Mm-hmm. He's pretty deep in red anyway. He can support, you know, he's got Grim Tutor. He's got, I think if he's, if you're going to play with four Gadaxian Probe, you might as well consider how, if you can go to four with forces, you know? He also has a one single mental misstep. I'm not saying that Reed had, didn't put a lot of thought into this, but I think that if you're going to go with this approach, you got to, you got to choose some other directions. I find it. I agree with you completely, and I find it interesting
0: that he landed on this list if he used some of your articles for reference, because the way I would describe this list is it looks like an outsider's view on Vintage Combo. It, It looks like you take the restricted list, you take the draw seven parts of the restricted list, basically... And then you add in additional speed and disruption. You add in—he's got four duress, he's got four rituals, he's got a singleton simian spirit guide, which is funny but functional. He he only found room for one mental misstep. I'm guessing maybe he started with more at some point. Yeah. And the four probes. So it's kind of like he took—he he properly identified a a valid strategy and all the best cards for that strategy, and then just supplemented it with di- with simple efficient disruption. Right. But at the same time, I view this deck as being built almost irrespective of the vintage metagame. Yeah. The sideboard it doesn't you know, it has some, some reasonable answers in it, of course, but this deck seems to just ignore the metagame and say, I'm gonna try and play these cards.
1: Yeah, I think to some extent that's true and that's understandable, but there are also some just very inexplicable internal structural problems. Like, like Chrome Mox is not better than Mox Opal. If you're going to play this deck with a Lion's Eye Diamond, you should be playing with Mox Opal, I think, over the first Chrome Mox. Similarly, he has a simian, one Simian Spirit Guide. How can that be explained over a Mox Opal gear? I mean, is it mm-hmm. just, he wants, you know an answer against null rod I mean is he actually thinking he's going to be able to use this as a bounce is a is a beater or is he trying to use this against spears um you know is is a, is a hedge against chalice for zero <laughs> um you know i i, I just don't Doesn't, doesn't really make a lot of sense. Not, not to mention the fact that he puts so much weight on, he also has a Cabal Ritual, which I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't play over a Mox Opal here. I think the, I think the, the omission of Mox Opal is an obvious structural weakness because it's better than a lot of the cards he has. Probably better than, I think almost definitely better than Simeon's Spirit Guide, almost certainly better than Cabal Ritual and probably better than the Chrome Mox too, but suggests there are some other structural problems here as well. I mean,
0: the, and the Singleton Grim Tutor stands out to me as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, the Grim Tutor is nice to sort of give you that, that strong Yawgmoth's will package.
0: If you want to go that direction, though, I see no problem with making this into Grimlong. Exactly. Add, but, add, but he didn't he take that, that route. He
1: didn't add that. take that route. He focuses a lot on Mind Desire, which makes me want Mox Opal and Mox Opal even more, yep. right? I'm not saying he has to play with forces here, but I think if you have to choose, are you going to be really, you know, are you going to try and play it one way or the other, you know? Um I think his deck just would have been a lot stronger with Burning Wishes, just to be completely honest. Burning Wishes and a little... You can play this deck. I mean, this is pretty close. I mean, it's not that close, but it's not totally <laughs> similar from my what I ultimately arrived at with Pitch Long, you know? And you can mm-hmm. play a Pitch Long without... The pitch counter spells and do something similar to this with burning wish and you're going to be but it's just going to be better than what he has yep. I
0: think. well it's a testament to his skill as a player that he piloted this list so deep into the tournament for as for someone who I think was had a disadvantage from a deck construction standpoint just by virtue of this deck's place in the metagame.
1: Not playing a lot of vintage. This is exactly not.
0: he doesn't play vintage as much as we do. Yeah, he's one of the
1: best Magic players in the world. And right. That, yeah. So the, I think my criticism, my comments are a little bit more critical than than I'd, I intend them to be in the sense that his deck he arrived at a lot of logical conclusions but I think there are some some obvious imperfections in what ultimately settled
0: I think there's another there's another subplot here which is that he pretty clearly developed his own deck which is somewhat of a surprise for a high level pro, such as him to come into a format that he doesn't play with regularity, and almost certainly did not test with a large team of pros like he might for some other event. Yeah, he just I think I, I read some of his tournament report, and I believe his uh, choice to even play in this event was somewhat last minute. So there's that on top of that, but the the point is is that the fact that he actually built a deck for this format not exactly from the ground up, but at least of his own, is, I think, fascinating in the sense that I don't think many other pros would do that. I think many other pros would... If coming in at the somewhat last minute to an event like this might just say, "Hey, what's good?" or look at a, a recent winning deck and just change a couple of cards, he clearly didn't do that right. he looked at he you know he attacked the format in a way that he thought was uh, effective and he put together a deck that's was obviously good enough because here he is sitting in fourth place at the end of the day. Yep. I just find that fascinating is all I think that uh, you could put a hundred different pros in his position in the same sort of scenario. And you wouldn't get this result. <laughs> I think that's fascinating. And good on him. I mean, he did a great job.
1: So let's, uh, let's, we've already talked about your deck, so I don't think, unless you want to say anything else about it.
0: No, I don't think, I think we can skip it.
1: Um, Benjamin played Rug Delver, so two Rug Delvers in the top eight, which I, I told Brian I predicted <laughs> the week before. Um, he has the Snapcaster Mages and Vendillion Clicks, which is more standard, are more standard, uh, over Young Pyromancer. I, I actually like, dealing click like i said a lot um his counter magic so he's got three delver three snapcaster mage four Goyf, and two click and his counterspell package is a lot lighter than aj's in that mm-hmm. he has two fluster storm four force three mental misstep and two spell pierce i think a three counter spells less
0: aj had one more mental misstep one more fluster storm and aj had a third spell pierce in place of benjamin's second steel sabotage
1: and Ben has a third Preordain. This whole thing with Preordain is really fascinating to me because the Grow decks always max out on that kind of effect. And to see this rug Elver decks running three Preordains, which I think is the standard, invented it's very strange to me. I would expect them to run four.
0: But Ben doesn't have Ponder. AJ has two Preordain, one Ponder. So they have the same quantity of that effect. That's totally unexpected. <laughs> now, just so we're clear on this, which is it that you are in favor of uh, Ponder versus Preordain in this deck?
1: Oh yeah, I would run both. I mean, I- I'm not sure if I could just sit here say I'd run four preordain and one hundred, but I think that's where I think. Okay, interesting. Yeah. And that's that's the fundamental premise of the growth the turbo Xerox structure that was drafted into these decks. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's how you maximize your virtual card advantage with Gush and be and be able to support a light mana base. I mean, these decks all have under twenty total mana source. So I can't understand running less than, than four of those. But they're able to do it somehow, so there it is. Next Eric Pentikoff with Dredge, the one dredge deck in the top eight, and his deck is Noticeably different in that it apparently has a lot of Icarid, main <laughs> Ingachur. <laughs> Kevin, you're laughing because it says six <laughs> That's Icarids. right.
0: Uh, I'm trying to think what is the card that this, this third, uh, the second set of Icarids is actually meant to be.
1: And it has four Petrified Fields main deck, which suggests that this deck is a particularly metagame fight workshop. And, and
0: And he also has Unmask. Yep, sure. And his sideboard, just for reference, is four chains, four ley lines, four claims, three wisp mare. So it's not, uh, this is not a breakthrough dredge deck. This is just... Sorry,
1: this deck list is miswritten. There's, there's gotta be four bazaars there and only one petrified. Oh, that geez. has to be
0: it. So we can't rely on this deck list as written here on Wizard's site too much. Yeah. But the simple truth is, is that this is not, this, this deck does not have any breakout technology. It just has a well adapted uh, version of the deck featuring the Ingachures, the Unmask, the Petrified Field. And once again, even in a, even in a fully prepared large vintage tournament, dredge peeks through and manages to make top eight, which is a testament to the resiliency of this archetype in general. Right. Next up is Taylor Pratt on Blue Angels. This is I don't want to say standard per se because this deck is still kind of fresh and somewhat somewhat uh, dynamic, but his creature base, one mind sensor, two restoration angels, one sower of temptation, three trinkets and three clicks. So I think there's a little bit of customization here in his creature base. And then other noteworthies are the Singleton main deck cage, but he has two main deck engineered explosives, and two tops in the main, and four j's. Now, I don't think there's a standard list of Blue Angels by any stretch at this point, but this one looks pretty tuned for a metagame. I... I would not consider two engineered explosives to be a, the default starting point by any stretch. I don't know what Taylor was pre- preparing for exactly, but it seems like it would serve him pretty well in a metagame featuring lots of aggro control.
1: Yeah, and this is also he's got a, it's a thick counterspell package as well. So just looking over these top eight deck lists, there are six deck list six of the eight deck lists have four Force of Will. But what's also interesting is I think I think seven of them have at least one mental misstep. <laughs>
0: Fascinating. Dredge is the only deck in the top eight that doesn't have at least one mental misstep in it. It definitely and it could. could. Other, dif- other derivations of dredge would.
1: I think there are. Um, I think there are 21 mental missteps here out of possible 22. 32. 22, yeah. <laughs> and mental misstep might be the. But, but there are six. There are 24 forces. Mental misstep might be one of the most popular cards in this top eight.
0: I think it is. There are three different. Jace decks, and the number of Jace in them is two, three, and four, respectively. And looking at the sideboards, to reinforce your point about what Oath has to deal with in the, in the, this environment,
1: Grafdigger's <laughs> Cages, Omnipresent.
0: Yeah, there are. It looks like twenty three. Oh nope, Greg Fenton obviously doesn't have them in his sideboard, so it's really <laughs> only nineteen out of a possible thirty two cages. If I'm if I'm counting the main decks also properly, but still, that's pretty omnipresent, and the, one of the decks that doesn't have any cages is obviously Dredge.
1: Yeah, and oh, and that's it. <laughs> and the
0: combo. And oh, so <laughs> yeah, so it's not really out of a possible 32. It's more like 19 out of a possible 24 cages.
1: It's amazing. And I, how many Flusterstorms are in this top 8? I think there are probably only about, I think only 6 grains. You and the, the oh no, there's probably 9. Yeah, Flusterstorm
0: 1, 2, 3... Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine fluster storms in the main decks,
1: yep. and one in the sideboard. Mental misstep is really very popular right now. And, and And one of the things that I should just note in my deck is I don't even sideboard out mental missteps against workshops a lot of times because it's worth it just to counter their four cages.
0: Definitely. And that's something that Brian alluded to in his article about their oath deck as well, is that a lot of people view mental misstep as a default side out against workshops and it is in many cases unless you're playing oath in which case you should probably keep some or all of them in unless you've got a better plan coming out of the sideboard but honestly there isn't much of a better plan than misstep their first turn cage so much so that after winning the champs with dredge mark hornung made a name for himself with his cage breaker dredge the next year (laughs) So, Steve, I think we should switch gears and just talk about where the format goes from here. I think this notion of aggro control being so popular at this particular event is no surprise. It's just a continuation of a trend that we've been observing for a while. The finals of Merfolk versus Rug is, I would say, surprising, although obviously not out of the question. But this top eight is missing one key thing, and that's workshops. Yes. I think the lack of workshops in this top eight speaks a lot to the event in question as everything played out, but I have a feeling that it might lead people to some false conclusions about this format going forward. I would caution anyone from really changing or reducing their workshop hate, right. but I would say that there are plenty of alternatives that you could look at for fighting workshops that are more versatile. Joel Lim, for example, has three dismembers in his sideboard. That's some technology that is good against workshops and also things like Rug delver and Bugfish. Toxic Deluge, which we touched on earlier, very good against the aggro control as well as creature-based workshop decks. And I think flexibility is the name of the game when it comes to a vintage deck in general. So
1: what do you think? I agree with your conclusion that people shouldn't reduce the number of workshop hate they have or answers or artifact answers, just as they shouldn't reduce the number of dredge answers despite only one dredge in the top eight. But I do think that this signals the decline of workshops in the top tier. And I think what's difficult to understand is that is exactly why. And I think uh, there have been a confluence of factors. I think, first of all, <sighs> some of the prominent tactics in the format and strategies in the format are just stronger against workshop and dredge. So combo has pushed it, it dredge from one angle and an Oath is not exactly great for dredge either. And um especially Oath with Crystal Brands and On the other hand, I think that workshops suffer from you know some of these solutions as well. Oath is pretty good against workshops, and people have finally figured out that you need to run not just a certain quantity, but you need to have good quality artifact from you know answers as well. And I think going forward, the the pushing down. I think what's happened is that people have finally figured out at a broad base level what what is needed to combat workshops and dredge, and that has created a lot of open space in the format for the first time. It's made it a lot seem a lot less oppressive and so all of these other strategies can flourish and this is such a divert, diverse environment where you have these slow control decks aggro control decks combo control decks combo decks and everything competing and i think what's really really important more than anything else is tight i think i think this is the first time in the history of vintage where tight technical play matters more relative to deck choice than i can ever remember interesting in other words if if in you know, however you allocate the importance or significance of deck choice versus in-game play, you know, in terms of explaining tournament performance, I think it's almost always been the case that having the best deck list has given you a big advantage. But I think this is the first time where having the right deck list is an advantage, but relative to playing well, playing well is just more important right now than it's ever been. At least ever been in, I'd say at least a decade. Um, I think the advantage. You, I mean, I had. Oh, I think is a, just a ridiculously awesome deck list, but I made some, uh, some really bad blunders. And the people who are really skilled and played well, you know, did very well. Like Reed Duke. Um, and watching the matches, I think reinforces it. The people are making mistakes in every single round. Um, and the people who advanced made, not only made fewer play mistakes, but they, they made fewer play mistakes because they were so expert at their deck list. So like Joel can play his deck pretty much in his sleep. And he had a great deck list and Joel's deck list. Someone played Joel's deck list at Eudaimonia this weekend and it lost in the finals to Bug Tempo, Bug Fish. I mean, look at the aggro control decks. Mono Blue Merfolk won this. Bug Tempo won the Bizarre Moxin over the summer, and I think, I think it actually won the, the Bizarre Moxin, uh, the same time as the Vintage Championship as well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's definitely a convergence towards aggro control, and I expect that to continue. I expect to see more null rods and lots of cages and corrupt decays and things like that. It's not clear to me, there are definitely some dynamics to, that need to play out. It's not clear for me, example, who has the advantage in the Bug versus rug matchup. You know, I also think that in terms of pushing down workshops, I think the Deathrite Shaman is really good against workshops because it helps. It fights through Thorn. It generates mana under Duress, under Spheres, um, and that's definitely helped that cause as well. Um, but you know, I think there are some things that have that need to sort of play out over the next six months, and I think the Vintage on Moto is going to be potentially another turning point where we're going to see this metagame you know um, come into being in a very different way.
0: Absolutely. The I think the online is going to have an even bigger impact than you're selling it because the metagame will shift more independently of the regionality that we have now and faster. Like it or not, as you and I have touched on before, there's still a lot of regionality in vintage metagames worldwide and across the United States.
1: I think that's going to converge. Yeah,
0: that will converge and become diluted, and also just metagame adaptations will happen happen more quickly.
1: I'm I'm a little more sanguine. I think on the potential of Magic Online, I think it has tremendous potential, but the the cost barrier to entry is is tremendous and it's not clear that's going to be answered the other thing is i think that it's going to have its own biases with respect to certain decks that are going to be less expensive you know
0: (laughs) yes the definition of budget is dramatically different on magic online than it is in print and budget will favor decks without force of wills on Magic Online, for example, yes, which yeah. might might sound like the same for print magic, but it's not. Decks online will have cheap moxin and expensive force of wills. Yeah. So you're going to see online, you're going to see more things probably like Belcher, more things like Affinity. So yes. it, you're right, it will have its own biases. But ironically, I think those biases, compared to the print metagame, will draw us all collectively into a more informed result. Because as we've seen with the classic deck, the Affinity deck that was adapted to Vintage recently with a great deal of success, that deck really pushed on some pressure points of the format and caused people to reevaluate some things and understand some things that had never really been looked at, at least in the last few years. And I think that's only a good thing. The presence of a Merfolk deck winning Vintage Champs, the presence of two rug Delvers in the top eight here, and the apparent absence of workshops. I think all of these things need to be carefully considered, and it's only a good thing for the format if we all collectively take the message in stride. What do you mean
1: by the apparent absence of
0: workshops? Well, I just mean the literal absence in the top eight, but also the apparent absence in terms of how the event played out.
1: See, I think, I think the thing is there's this dynamic where dredge and workshops do what they do. And when people... Sort of skimp on their answers, then they flourish. When people mm-hmm. don't skimp on their answers and utilize all the tools available to them, they're kept in check to some degree. I think that's what's happening is finally, you know, it, before the, the top players knew how to answer those threats, but I think now it, it's a more broader recognition of what needs to be done, both quality and quantity. And so I don't really see, you know, these things happen in cycles where we see workshops are really powerful and dominant and oppressive. Mm-hmm. They sort of fade. We're definitely, I think, in that you know, from the summer to now, we're in that downward trend for both workshops and dredge, and I I don't see them coming up out of this anytime soon, just yet. We could, the meta game could definitely shift, um, you know, I, I just don't see that. I think these agro control decks are going to keep those things in check. Joel's deck is no walk in the park for a workshop deck.
0: <laughs> well, and in order to find the top placing workshop deck, you only need to go down to twelfth place. Farino, who made top eight at this event last year, or at Gen Con last, was in 12th place with his workshop. So it is right there, as you said, on the cusp.
1: Yeah, I think this entire tournament this event and what's coming out of it suggests that deck expertise and tight technical play are really the keys to success invented right now agreed you have so many options it's more important to really know what you're doing and play it well than fretting too much whether you're playing rug or bug good point
0: (laughs) most things that you're skilled at playing are viable right now You've highlighted some listener feedback for today's episode. What have you got, Steve?
1: Someone on the Minidrain said, good podcast as always, one rule's annoyance though. You started talking about who controls an ability or spell on the stack, and Kevin suggested it was whoever controlled the permanent with the ability. The answer here, I think he's referring to Trune Nemesis, is is whoever paid the cost and puts the thing on the stack controls it It is not determined by who owns the source. And then he talks about the monger cycles.
0: Thanks for the clarification. I think that was Maximum dog, and you're completely right. When I was talking about the definition of uh, who controls abilities, I did not give a full and thorough uh, definition or explanation. While the Mongers are clearly not uh, relevant in Vintage, the fact is is that it isn't quite as simple as just who owns or controls the permanent in question. But I think for the purposes of, of uh, what you need to know about playing against True Name Nemesis, the stuff that you play is the stuff that you control and uh, vice versa. So, I think it's a fair rule of thumb, but for anyone who's really interested in digging into specific examples, definitely look further than my simple assessment
1: from last episode. We've gotten over the last couple of months a number of listeners who told us that they've gone back and listened to our entire show archive. It's just quite an incredible and impressive thing that despite being very time sensitive in a number of cases, there seem to be some lasting quality to the, the episodes. So um, and I think people really seem to breeze through the first dozen or so episodes. But If you go back and do that, we're, we'd love to hear your feedback on what we could do better and what you liked and what you didn't.
0: Yeah, what were your favorite episodes slash topics or recurring segments because that's the kind of stuff we can emphasize more going forward.
1: So do we have a closing question for today?
0: Well, Steve, we're basically at the end of 2013. We may have one more show in us this year, but but Eternal Weekend has now put a pretty good cap on this year. And I think we should ask from our audience, what's the biggest story of 2013 for Vintage? Sounds good. Thank you for listening to episode 31 of So Many Insane Plays. Again, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. This looks game. <laughs> <laughs>